Maybe you and I should get the My Dinner with Andre script and just record ourselves just reading it for a podcast one week. Do a full episode and we'll call it My Dinner with Andre. <laughs> I wonder if like, we'll get sued for that. And, and then we'll just do the audio play of it. I wonder if we're allowed to do that. I'm going to look into it because that seems like a fun idea. What a hilarious thing. Especially if it's the first time we're reading it. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it should be. Just like completely cold. <laughs> All right, well, if we can't get through it, surely Will Smith can make some phone calls and make that happen. It's true. Unless, of course, you can't trust him. Which you can't. Nope, never trust Will Smith. NTWS. The life of a playwright is tough. It's not easy, as some people seem to think. You work hard writing plays. Nobody puts them on. You take up other lines of work to try to make a living. I became an actor, and people don't hire you, so you just spend your days doing errands of your trade. Today, I had to be up at 10 in the morning to make some important phone calls. Then I'd gone to the stationery store to buy envelopes, then to the Xerox shop. There were dozens of things to do. By five o'clock, I'd finally made it to the post office and mailed off several copies of my plays. Meanwhile, uh, checking constantly with my answering service to see if my agent had called with any acting work. In the morning, the mailbox had just been stuffed with bills. What am I supposed to do? How was I supposed to pay them? After all, I was already doing my best. I've lived in this city all my life. I grew up on the Upper East Side. When I was 10 years old, I was rich. I was an aristocrat riding around in taxis surrounded by comfort. And all I thought about was art and music. Now I'm 36 and all I think about is money. It was now seven o'clock and I would have liked nothing better than to go home and have my girlfriend Debbie cook me a nice delicious dinner. But for the last several years, our financial circumstances have forced Debbie to work three nights a week as a waitress. After all, somebody had to bring in a little money. So I was on my own. But the worst thing of all was that I'd been trapped by an odd series of circumstances into agreeing to have, a, to have dinner with a man I'd been avoiding literally for years. His name was Andre Gregory. At one time, he'd been a, a very close friend of mine, as well as my most valued colleague in the theater. In fact, he was the man who had first discovered me and put one of my plays on the professional stage. When I'd known Andre, he'd been at the height of his career as a theater director. The amazing work he did with his company, The Manhattan Project had just stunned audiences throughout the world. But then, something had happened to Andre. He dropped out of the theater. He sort of disappeared. For months at a time, his family seemed only to know that he was traveling in some odd place like Tibet, which was really weird because he loved his wife and children. He never used to like to leave home at all, or else you'd hear that someone had met him at a party and he'd been telling people that he'd talked with trees or something like that. Obviously, something terrible happened to Andre. The whole idea of meeting him made me very nervous. I mean, I really wasn't up for that sort of thing. I had problems of my own. I mean, I couldn't help Andre. Was I supposed to be a doctor or what? Hello. Hello, sir. Uh, sir, my name is Wallace Sean. I'm expected at the table of Andre Gregory. That table will be a moment, sir. If you like, you may have a drink at the bar. Uh, can I have a club soda, please? I'm sorry, sir. We only serve source de pavilion. That'd be fine. Thank you. When I'd called Andre and he'd suggested that we meet in this particular restaurant, I'd been rather surprised because Andre, Andre's tastes used to be very aesthetic, even though people have always known that 
he has some money somewhere. I mean, how the hell else could he have been flying off to Asia and so on and still have been supporting his family? The reason I was meeting Andre was that an acquaintance of mine, George Grassfield, had called me and just insisted that I had to see him. Apparently, George had been walking his dog in an odd section of town the night before, and he suddenly has come across Andre leaning against a crumbling old building and sobbing. Andre had explained to George that he'd just been watching the Ingmar Bergman movie Autumn Sonata, about 25 blocks away, and he'd been seized by a fit of ungovernable crying when the character played by Ingmar Uh, Ingrid Bergman, had said, I could always live in my art, but never in my life. Wally! Wow, (laughs) my God. I remember when I first started working with Andre's company, I I couldn't get over the way the actors would hug when they greeted each other. Wow, now I'm really in theater, I thought. Well, you look terrific. Well, I feel terrible. Good evening, sir. Nice to see you again. Thank you. Good evening. Uh, I'll have a spritzer if I could. Yes, sir. Thank you. I was feeling incredibly nervous. I wasn't sure I could stick through an entire meal with him. So we talked about this and that. He told me a few things about Jerzy Grotowski, the great Polish theater director, who was a friend and almost like a, a kind of guru of Andre's. He'd also dropped out of theater. Grotowski was a pretty usual char- pretty unusual character himself. At one time, he'd been quite fat, and then he lost an incredible amount of weight, become very thin, and had grown a beard. Your table is ready. Oh. If you feel like sitting down. Oh. Yes. Thank you. I was beginning to realize that the only way to make this evening bearable would be to ask Andre a few questions. Asking questions always relaxes me. In fact, I sometimes think that my secret profession is that I'm a private investigator, a detective. I always enjoy finding out about people, even if they're in absolute agony. I always find it very interesting. By the way, is he still thin? What? Grotowski, is he still thin? Oh, absolutely. Oh, the waiter? Uh, I think we can do without this. Yes, sir. Thank you. (laughs) What about this one? Seven swimming shrimp. Ready for your order? Uh, yes, the Erin Galuska. Uh, how, how do you prepare that? Andre seemed to know an awful lot about the menu. I didn't understand a word of it. Very good, I think. Mm, no, I think I'll have the cayo raisin. Very good. The quail. Oh, quails. I'll have that as well. Two. Great. Great. And then I think, to begin with, the terrine de poisson. Yes. What is that? Uh, it's a sort of pate, light, made of fish. Does it have bones in it? No bones. Perfectly safe. Well, um... Uh, what is the Brambarova Polevka? It's a potato soup. It's quite delicious. Oh, well, that's that's great. I'll have that. Thank you very kindly. Thank you very much. Well, and when was the last time? So we talked for a while about my writing and my acting and about my girlfriend, Debbie. We talked about his wife, Chiquita, and his two children, Nicholas and Marina. And I, I, I'd stayed back. Finally, I got around to asking him what he'd been up to for the last few years. I'm just dying to hear it. Really? Really. At first, he seemed uh, a little reluctant to go into it, so I just kept asking, and finally he started to answer. Conference on paratheatrical work then, and uh, this must have been about five years ago, and uh, Grotowski and I were working along Fifth Avenue, and we were talking, you see, He'd invited me to come teach that summer in Poland, you know, to teach a workshop to actors and directors and whatever. And I told him I didn't want to come because really 
I had nothing left to teach. I had nothing left to say. I didn't know anything. I couldn't teach anything. Exercises meant nothing to me anymore. Working on scenes from plays seemed ridiculous. I, I didn't know what to do. I just couldn't do it. So he said, why don't you tell me anything you'd like to have if you did a workshop for me, no matter how outrageous, and maybe I can give it to you. So I said, well, if you could give me 40 Jewish women who speak neither English nor French, either women who've been in theater for a long time and want to leave it but don't know why, or young women who love the theater but have never seen a theater they could love, and if these women could play the trumpet or the harp, and if I could work in a forest, I'd come. A week later, or two weeks later, he called me from Poland, and he said, well, 40 Jewish women, that's a little hard to find, but he said, I do have 40 women. They all pretty much fit the definition. And he said, I also have some very interesting men, but you don't have to work with them. These are all people who have in common the fact that they're questioning the theater. They don't all play the trumpet or the harp, but they all want to play a musical instrument, and none of them speak English. And he found me a forest, Wally. The only inhabitants of this forest were some wild boar and a hermit. That was an offer I couldn't refuse. I had to go. So I went to Poland to see this wonderful group of young men and women, and the forest he'd found us was absolutely magic. But, you know, it was a huge forest. I mean, the trees were so large that four or five people linking their arms couldn't get their arms around the trees. So we were camped out beside the ruins of these little tiny castles, and we would eat around the great stone slab that served as some as a sort of table. And our schedule was... And our schedule was usually that we'd start work around sunset, and then generally we'd work until 6 or 7 in the morning. And then, because the Poles loved to sing and dance, we'd sing and dance until about 10 or 11 in the morning. And then we'd have our food, which was generally bread, jam, cheese, and tea. And then we'd sleep from around noon to sunset. Now, technically, of course, technically, the situation is a very interesting one, because you find yourself in a forest with a group of 40 people who don't speak your language. Then all your moorings are gone. What do you mean, exactly? Well, what we do is just sit there and wait for someone to have an impulse to do something. Now, in a way, that's, that's something like a, a theatrical improvisation. Uh, you know, if you're working with a director on a play by Chekhov, you might have the actors playing the mother, the son, and the uncle all sit around in a room and do a made-up scene that isn't the play. For instance, you might have them say, all right, let's say that it's a rainy Sunday afternoon in Soren's estate and you're all trapped in the drawing room together. And then everyone would improvise, saying what they're doing or what their character might say and do in that circumstance. Except in this type of, improvis except in this type of improvisation, the kind we did in Poland, the theme is oneself. So you follow the same law of improvisation, which is, this, which is what you do, uh, sorry, which is what you do whatever your impulse as the character tells you to do. But in this case, you're the character. So there's no imaginary situation to hide behind, and there's no other person to hide behind. What you're doing, in fact, is you're asking the same questions that Stanislavski said the actor should constantly ask himself as the character. Who am I? Why am I here? Where do I come from? And where am I going? But instead of applying them to a role, you apply them to yourself. Hmm. Or, to look at it a little differently in a way, it's like going back to childhood, where a group of children simply come into a room or are brought into a room without toys and begin to play. Grown-ups were learning how to play again. So you would uh, all, all sit together and uh, you would play in some way, but you would, you would actually, what would you actually do? Well, I could give you a good example. You see, we worked uh, together for a week in the city and went off into the forest. And of course, Gr Grotowski was there in the city too. And 
I heard that every night he conducted something called a beehive, and I loved the sound of this beehive. So a night or two before we were supposed to go off into the country, I grabbed him by the collar and I said, listen about this beehive, you know. I'd kind of like to participate in this one, just instinctively. I feel like it would be something interesting. And he said, well, certainly. In fact, why don't you, with your group, lead the beehive instead of participating in one? Well, you know, I I got very nervous, you know. I said, well, what is the beehive? He said, well, a beehive is at 8 o'clock. A hundred strangers come into a room, and I said, yes. And he said, and whatever happens is a beehive. I said, yes, but what am I supposed to do? He said, that's up to you. I said, no, no, I I really don't want to do this. I'll just participate. And he said, no, no, you lead the beehive. Well, I was terrified, Wally. I mean, in a way, I felt on stage. I did it anyway. God, well, well, tell me about it. You see, there was this song. I have a tape of it. I can play it for you one day. And it's just unbelievably beautiful. You see... One of the women in our group knew a few fragments of the songs of St. Francis, and it's a song that you thank God for your eyes, and you thank God for your heart, and you thank God for your friends, and you thank God for your life, and it uh, repeats itself over and over again. And this became our theme song. I really must play the thing for you one day because you just can't believe that a group of people who don't know how to sing could create something so beautiful. So that when the people arrived for the beehive, that our group would already be there singing this beautiful song and that we would simply sing it over and over again. One of the people decided to bring her very large teddy bear, you know, well, she's a little afraid of this event, and uh, somebody wanted to bring a sheet and somebody wanted to bring a large bowl of water in case people got hot or thirsty. And somebody suggested that we have candles and there would be no artificial light but candlelight. And I remember watching people prepare for this evening Of course, there was no makeup and there were no costumes, but it was exactly the way that people prepare for a performance, you know? People sort of taking off their jewelry and their watches and stowing it away and making sure it's all secure. And then people arrived the way that they would arrive in a theater in ones and twos and tens and fifteens and what have you. And we were just sitting there and we were singing this very beautiful song and people started to sit with us and started to learn the song. Now, there is, of course, as in any performance or improvisation, an instinct for when things are going to get boring. So at a certain point, it may only have taken an hour to get there, an hour and a half, I suddenly grabbed this teddy and I threw it in the air, at which point 140 people suddenly exploded. You know, it was like a Jackson Pollock painting, you know. Human beings exploded out in this tight little circle and was singing and singing the song. And before I knew it, there were two circles dancing, you know, and one dancing clockwise and the other dancing counterclockwise with this rhythm, mostly from the waist down. In other words, like an American Indian dance with this thumping, persistent rhythm. Now, you can see easily because we're talking about group trance where the line in between something like this and something like Hitler's Nuremberg rallies is in a way a very thin line. Anyway, after about an hour of this wild hypnotic dancing, Grotowski and I found this found ourselves sitting opposite each other in the middle of the whole thing and he threw the teddy bear back and forth, you know, on one on one level you could say this was childish. And I gave the teddy bear suck suddenly at my breast and then I threw the teddy bear to him and he gave it a suck at his breast and then the teddy bear was thrown in the air again at which point there was another explosion of form into something and these suppose it like you know this like something like something like a kaleidoscope like a human kaleidoscope the evening was made up of the shiftings of the kaleidoscope now the only things that I can remember other than constantly trying to guide this thing which was 
always involved with either the moment, the rhythm, the repetition, or song, or chanting, because uh, two people in my group had brought musical instruments, a flute and a drum, which of course are sacred instruments, was that sometimes the room would break up into six or seven different things going on at once. You know, six or seven different improvisations, all of which seemed in some way related to each other. It was like a magnificent cobweb. And at one point, I noticed that Grotowski was at the center of the group, huddled around a bunch of candles that they gathered together. And like a little child fascinated by fire, I saw that he had his hand in the flame and was holding it there. And as I approached his group, I wondered if I could do it. I put my left hand in the flame. I found I could hold it there for as long as I liked, and there was no burn and no pain. But when I tried to put my right hand in the flame, I couldn't hold it there for a second. So Grotowski said, if it burns, try to change something in yourself. And I did that, and I tried to do that, and it didn't work. Then I remember a very beautiful procession with the sheet, and there was somebody being... We're we're really putting you to work here, aren't we? (laughs) (laughs) It's a good warm-up. It is. Then I remember a very beautiful procession with the sheet, and there was somebody being carried below the sheet. You know, the sheet was like some great biblical canopy, and the entire work group was weaving and around the room and they were chanting and then at one point people were dancing and i was dancing with the girl suddenly our hands began vibrating near each other's like this vibrating vibrating and we got down to our hands and knees and suddenly i was sobbing in our arms and she was sort of cradling me in her arms and then she started to cry too and then we just hugged each other for a moment and uh then we joined the dance again and then at a certain point hours later we returned to the singing of the song of saint francis And that was the end of the beehive. And then again, when it was over, it was just like the theater after a performance. You know, people sort of put on their earrings and their wristwatches and went off to the railroad station to drink a lot of beer and have a good dinner. Oh, and there was this one girl who wasn't in our group, but who just wouldn't leave. So we took her along with us. Huh. God. Well, tell me some of the other things you did with your group. Well, oh, I uh, remember once when we were in the city, we tried doing an improvisation, you know, the kind i used to do in new york uh everyone's supposed to be on an airplane they've all learned from the pilot there's something wrong with the motor but what's unusual with this improvisation was that there were two people that who participated it and it fell in love they've in fact married and then we went yeah out of fear of being on this plane they fell in love thinking that they were going to die in the moment and then we went to the forest these two these two disappeared because they understood the the experiment so well they realized that to go off in the forest was much more important than any kind of experiment the group could do as a whole so uh about halfway through the week we stumbled into a clearing in the forest and two of them were fast asleep in each other's arms it was around dawn and we put flowers on them to let them know we'd been there and then we crept away and then on the last day of our and the last day of our stay in the forest, these two showed up and they shook me by my hands and they thanked me very much for the wonderful work they'd been able to do. You see, they understood what it was about. I mean, of course, that poses the question of what was it about? But it has has something to do with living. And then on our final day of the stay in the forest, the whole group did something so wonderful for me, Wally. They arranged a christening, a baptism for me. They They filled a castle with flowers and it was just a miracle of light because they'd literally set up hundreds of candles and torches. I mean, no church could have looked more beautiful. There was a simple ceremony and one of them played the role of my godmother and another played the role of my godfather and I was given a new name. They called me Yendrush. 
and some of the people took it completely seriously and some of them found it funny, but uh, I really felt that I had a new name. And then we had an enormous feast with blueberries picked from the field and chocolate. Someone had gone a great distance to buy and raspberry soup and rabbit stew. And we sang Polish songs and Greek songs and everybody danced for the rest of the night. Hmm. Oh, I have a picture. See, this was, let's see. Oh yeah, this was me in the forest. See? God. That's what it felt like. That's the state I was in. God. Yeah, I remember George. Uh, told me he'd seen you around that time. He, he said you looked like you'd come back from the war. Yeah, I remember meeting him. He, uh, he asked me a lot of friendly questions. I think I called you up too that summer, didn't I? Huh. I think I was out of town. Yeah, well, most, most people I met thought there was something wrong with me. They didn't say that, but I could tell that was something they thought. But you see, what I think I experienced was, for the first time in my life, to know what it means to be truly alive. Now that's very frightening, because with that comes an immediate awareness of death, death, because they go hand in hand, you know, the kind of impulse that led Walt Whitman to the leaves of grass, you know, the feeling of being connected to everything that also means to be connected to death, and that's pretty scary, but I really felt as if I were floating above the ground, not walking, you know, and I could do wonderful things, uh, and I could do things like go out on the highway and watch the lights go out from, my, from red to green and go, how wonderful. And then one day in the early fall, I was out in the country walking in a field and I suddenly heard a voice say, Little Prince. And of course, The Little Prince was a book that I had always thought of as a disgusting, childish treacle. But still, I thought, well, you know, if a voice comes to me in a field, I mean, this was the first voice I'd ever heard. Maybe I should go and read the book. Now, that same morning, I got a letter from a young woman who'd been in my group in Poland. And in her letter, she'd written... You have dominated me. You know, she spoke very awkward English, so she'd go to the dictionary, and she crossed out the word dominated, and she said, no, the correct word is tamed. And then I went to town and bought the book, and I started to read it. I saw that taming was the most important word in the whole book. By the end of the book, I was in tears. I was so moved by this story. And then I went, and I tried to write the answer to her in a letter because she'd written me a very long letter but I couldn't find the right words. So finally, I took my hand, I put it on a piece of paper, I outlined it with a pen, and I wrote in the center something like, your heart is in my hand, something like that. And then I went over to my brother's house to swim because he lives nearby in the country and he has a pool and he wasn't home. And I went to his library and he had bought, a, a, bought at an auction a collection of uh, issues of Minotaur, you know, the Surrealist magazine? Oh, it's a great Surrealist magazine in the 20s and 30s and I... I never, you know, I consider myself a bit of a surrealist. I had never seen a copy of Minotaur, and here they all were, bound year after year. So at random, I pick one out. I open it up, and there's this full-page reproduction of a letter, of the letter A from Tenniel's Alice in Wonderland. And I thought, well, you know, it's been a clear day of coincidences, but that's not unusual. That's the Surrealists would have been interested in Alice, and I did a play of Alice. So at random, I opened to another page, and there were four handprints. One was Andre Breton. The other was Andre Durain. The third was Andre... I've got it written down somewhere. It's, it's not Malraux. It's like... It's another one of the Surrealists. All A's. And the fourth was Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who wrote The Little Prince. 
and they'd showed these handprints to some kind of expert without saying whose hands they belonged to. And under expertise, it said that he was an artist with very powerful eyes who was a tamer of wild animals. So I thought, this is incredible, you know? And I looked back to see when the issue came out. It came out on newsstands May 12th, 1934. And I was born the day of May 11th, 1934. So that's what started me on uh, St. Expiré and the Little Prince. Now, of course, today, today I think there's something very fa fascistic. Fascistic? Yeah. Uh, a very fascistic thing under the Little Prince, you know? I... Well, no. I think there's kind of, I think there's a kind of SS totalitarian sentimentality in there somewhere. You know, there's something, you know, that the love of, um, well, the masculine love of a certain kind of oily muscle. You know what I mean? I mean, I can't quite put my finger on it, but I just can't, Im but I can just imagine loving some beautiful SS man loving the little prince. Now, I don't know why. But there's something wrong with it. It stinks. Well, didn't George tell me you were going to do a play that was based on The Little Prince? Hmm. Well, that happened, Wally. Was... Well, what happened, Wally, was that fall I was in New York, and I met this young Japanese Buddhist priest named Kozan. And I thought he was Puck from the Midsummer Night's Dream, you know? He had this beautiful, delicate smile. I thought he was the Little Prince. So naturally, I decided to go off to the Sahara Desert to do work on the Little Prince with two actors and this Japanese monk. You did? Well, I mean, I was still in a very peculiar state at the time, Wally. You know, I would, I would look in the rear view of my car and see these little birds flying out of my mouth. And I remember always being exhausted in that period. I always felt weak, you know? I, I really didn't know what was going on with me. I would just sit there all alone in the country for days and do nothing but write my diary, and I was always thinking about death. Huh. But you went to the Sahara. Oh, yeah. We went off to the desert, and we rode through the desert on camels, and we rode, and we rode. And then at night, we would walk out under the enormous sky and look at the stars, and I just kept thinking about the same things that I was always thinking about at home, particularly about Chiquita. In fact, I thought, I thought about just nothing but my marriage. And then I can remember one incredibly dark night being at an oasis, and there were these palm trees moving in the wind, and I could hear Kozan singing far away in that beautiful bass voice, and I tried to follow his voice along in the sand. You see, I thought he had something to teach me, Wally, and sometimes I would meditate with him. Sometimes I would go off and meditate by myself. You know, I would see images of Chiquita. Once, I actually saw her growing, her, growing old and her hair turning gray in front of my eyes. And I would just wail and yell my lungs out out there on the dunes. Anyway, the desert was pretty horrible. It was pretty cold. We were searching for something, and I couldn't tell if we were finding anything. You know, once Kozan and I, we were sitting on this dune, and we just ate sand. No, we weren't trying to be funny. I started, and then he started. We just ate sand and threw up. That's how desperate we were. In other words... We didn't know why we were there. We didn't know what we were looking for. The entire thing seemed completely absurd, arid, and empty. It was like uh, a last chance or something. Huh. So what happened then? Well, in those days, I went completely on impulse. So on impulse, I brought Kozan back, to, back with us to New York after we got back from the Sahara. And he stayed for six months. And he really took, and he really sort of took over the whole family in a way. What do you mean? 
Well, there was certainly a center missing in the house at the time. There certainly wasn't a father, because I was always thinking about going off to Tibet or doing God knows what. And so he taught the whole family to meditate, and he told them about Asia and the East and his monastery and everything. He really captivated everyone with an incredible bag of tricks. He had literally developed himself, Wally, so that he could push on his fingers and rise off out of his chair. I mean, he could literally go like this, you know, push his fingers and go into a headstand and just hold himself there with two fingers. Or if Chiquita would suddenly get a little tension in her neck, well, he'd immediately have her down on the floor. He'd be walking up and down her back doing these unbelievable massages, you know? And the children found him amazing. I mean... You know, we'd visit friends who had children, and immediately he'd be playing with these children in a way that, you know, we just can't do. I mean, those children just giggles, giggles, giggles about what this Japanese monk was doing in these holy robes. I mean, he was an acrobat, a ventriloquist, a magician, everything. You know, the amazing thing was that I don't think he had any interest in children whatsoever. None at all. I don't think he liked them. I mean, you know, when he stayed with us in the first week, the kids were really just googly-eyed over him. But then, a couple weeks later, Chiquita and I could be out, and Marina could have the flu or the temperature of 104, and he wouldn't even go and say hello to her. But he was taking over more and more. I mean, his own habits had completely changed. You know, he started wearing these elegant Gucci shoes under his white monk's robe. He was eating huge amounts of food. I mean, he ate twice as much as Nicholas ate, you know? This tiny little Buddhist, when I first met him, you know, he was eating a, a, a bowl of hot milk. Hot milk with rice! And now he was eating huge beef. It was just very strange. You know, we were trying to work together, but really our work consisted mostly of me trying to do these incredibly painful prostrations that they do in the monastery, you know? So really, we hadn't been working very much. Anyway, we were out in the country and we all went to Christmas mass together. You know, he was all dressed up in his Buddhist finery. And it was one of those, one of those awful dreary Catholic churches on Long Island where the priests talk about communism and birth control and as i was sitting there in mass i was thinking what in the world is going on i mean here i am i'm a grown man and there's a strange person living in the house and i'm not working i mean you know i was doing nothing but scribbling a little poetry in my diary i can't get a job teaching anymore and i don't know what to do when all of a sudden a huge creature appeared looking at the congregation it was about i'd say six foot eight or something like that you know it was it was half bull, half man, and its skin was blue. It had violets growing out of its eyelids and poppies growing out of its toenails. And it just stood there for the whole mass. I mean, you could not make that, I could not make that creature disappear. You know, I thought, oh, well, you know, I'm just seeing this because I'm bored, you know. Close. I could not make that creature go away. Okay. Now, I didn't talk with people about it because they'd think I was weird. But I felt this creature was somehow coming to comfort me. That somehow he was appearing to say, well, you may feel low and you might not be able to create a play right now, but look at what look at what can come to you on Christmas Eve. Hang on, old friend. I mean, I, I may seem weird to, to you, but to these weird voyage, but on these weird voyages, weird creatures appear. It's part of the journey. You're okay. Hang in there. By the way, uh, did you ever see the play um, The Violets Are Blue? No. Oh, when when you mentioned the violets, it it reminded me of that. It it was about um, people being uh, strangled on a on a submarine. Hmm. Well, so that was that was Christmas. What happened after that? Do you really want to hear about all this? Yeah. 
Well, around that time, I was beginning to think about going to India, and Kozan suddenly left one day, and I was beginning to get into a lot of very strange ideas around time, around that time. Now, for example, I developed this, well, I got into the idea, which I now, it was a very appealing, it was very appealing to me at the time, you know, which was that I would have this flag, a large flag, and that wherever I worked, this flag would fly, or if we were outside, say with a group, that the flag could be the thing we lay on at night and that somehow between working on this flag and lying on this flag and the flag flying over us that the flag would pick up vibrations of a kind that we would still be in the flag when i brought it home so i went down to meet this flag maker that i'd heard about you know and there was this very straightforward looking guy you know very sweet really healthy looking everything nice big blonde and he had this beautiful, clean loft in the village with lovely, happy flags. And I was all into the little prince, and I talked to him about the little prince. And these adventures and everything, how I needed the flag, what the flag should be. He seemed to really connect with it. So two weeks later, I come back, and he showed me the flag that I thought was very odd. You know, because I, well, you know, I'd expected something gentle and lyrical. There was something about this that was so powerful, it was almost overwhelming. And it did include a Tibetan swastika. He put a swastika on your flag? No, it was the Tibetan swastika, not not the Nazi swastika. It's one of the most ancient Tibetan symbols. And it was just strange, you know? But I brought it home because my idea with this flag that was that before I left, you know, before I left for India, I wanted several people who were close to me to have this flag in the room for a night to sleep with it. You know, just in the morning to sew something into the flag. So I took the flag to Marina and I said, hey, look at this. What do you think of this? And she said, what is that? That's awful. I said, it's a flag. And she said, I don't like it. I said, I kind of thought you might like to spend the night with it, you know? But she really thought the flag was awful. So then Chiquita threw this party for me before I left for India. And the apartment was filled with guests. And at one point Chiquita said, the flag, the flag, where's the flag? And I said, oh, yeah, the flag. And I go and I get the flag and I open it up. Chiquita goes absolutely white and runs out of the room and vomits. So the party just kind of comes to a halt and breaks up. And then the next day, I gave it to this young woman who'd been in my group in Poland who is now in New York. I didn't tell her about any of this. At 5 in the morning, she called me and she said, I got to come see you right away. And I thought, oh, God. She came up and she said, I saw things. I saw things around this flag. Now, I know you're stubborn, and I know you want to take this thing with you, but if you followed my advice, you'd put it in a hole in the ground and burn it and cover it with earth because the devil's in it. I never took the flag with me. In fact, I gave it to her, and uh, she had a ceremony with it. Six months later in France with some friends in which uh, they, they did burn it. God, it's really, really amazing. So did you ever go to India? Oh, yes. I, I, I went to India in the spring, Wally, and I came back uh, home feeling all wrong. I mean, you know, I'd been to India and I just felt like a tourist. I'd found nothing. So I was uh, I was spending the summer on Long Island with my family, and I heard about this community in Scotland called Findhorn, where people sang and talked and meditated with plants. And it was founded by several uh, rather middle-class English and Scottish eccentrics, some of them intellectuals and some of them not. And I'd heard that they'd grown these things in the soil that supposedly nothing can grow in because it's almost bleach soil. And they'd built, not built, they'd grown the largest cauliflowers in the world 
and there are sorts of cabbages and they've grown trees that can't grow in the British Isles. So I went there. I mean, this amazing place, Wally. I mean, th if there are insects bothering the plants, they will talk with the insects. You know, they will make an agreement by which they'll set aside the special patch of vegetables just for the insects. And then the insects will leave the main part. Things like that. And everything they do, they do beautifully. I mean, the buildings just shine. I mean, for instance, the icebox, the stove, the car, you know, they all have names. And since you wouldn't treat Helen, the icebox, with any less respect than you would treat Margaret, your wife, you know, you make sure that Helen is as clean as Mar Margaret or treated with equal respect. How you doing? You okay? <laughs> I think I'm okay. Okay. <laughs> this is not what I expected. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was like, was this a test all along? It's this is not some kind of weird <laughs> troll, I promise. <laughs> and when I was there, Wally, I remember being in the woods and I would look at a leaf and I would actually see that this thing is alive in this leaf. And then I remember just running through the woods as fast as I could with this incredible laugh coming out of me and really being in the state, you know, where laughter and tears seemed to merge. I mean, it absolutely blasted me open. When I came out of Finehorn, I was hallucinating nonstop. I was seeing clouds as creatures. The people on the airplane all had animal faces. I mean, I was on a trip. It was like being in a William Blake world suddenly. Things were exploding. So immediately I went to Belgrade because uh, I wanted to talk to Grotowski. And Grotowski and I got together at midnight in my hotel room and we drank instant coffee out of the top of my shaving cream. And we talked from midnight until 11 the next morning. God, what did he say? Nothing. I talked. He didn't say a word. And then, and, and then I guess really the last big experience of this took place that fall. It was out on Montauk on Long Island and there were only about nine of us involved, mostly men. And we borrowed Dick Avden's property out at Montauk and the country out there is like Heathcliff country. It's absolutely wild. What we wanted to do is we wanted to take, you know, we wanted to take All Souls Eve, Halloween, and use it as a point of departure for something. So each of us prepared some sort of event for the others, somehow in the spirit of All Souls Eve. But the biggest event was three of the people kept disappearing in the middle of the night, each night. And we knew that they were disappearing to something big, but we didn't know what. And the midnight on Halloween, under a dark moon above these cliffs we were all told to gather at the topmost cliff and we did and we waited and it was very very cold and the three of them helen bill fred showed up wearing white you know something they made out of sheets looked a little spooky not funny and they took us into the basement of the house that they had burned down on the property and in this ruined basement they had set up tables with benches they'd made and on the table, they had laid out paper, pencils, wine, and glasses. And we were all asked to sit at the table and make out our last will and testament, you know, to think about and write down whatever our last words were to the world or to somebody we were very close to. And that's quite the task. I must have been there for about an hour or so, an hour and a half or so, maybe two. And then one at a time, they would come in and ask one of us to come with them and I was the lot one of the last and they came for me and they put a blindfold on me and they ran me through these fields two people and they'd found a kind of plotting shed you know a kind of shed on the grounds a tiny room that once had tools in it 
and they took me down the steps into this basement and the room was just filled with harsh white light. Then they told me to get undressed and give them all my valuables. Then they put me on a table and they sponged me down. Well, you know, I, I just started flashing on, on death camps and secret police. I don't know what happened to the other people, but I just started to cry uncontrollably. Uh, then, then they got me to my feet and they took photographs of me naked. And then naked, again, blindfolded, I was run through these forests and we came to a kind of tent made of sheets with sheets on the ground and there were all these naked bodies huddling together for warmth against the cold. Must have been must have been left there for about an hour. And then again, one by one, one at a time, we were let out. The blindfold was put on and I felt myself being lowered onto something like a stretcher. And the stretcher was carried a long way, very slowly through these forests. And then I felt myself being lowered onto the ground. They had, in fact, dug six graves eight feet deep. And then I felt these pieces of wood being put on me, and I cannot tell you, Wally, what I was going through. <laughs> and then the stretcher was lowered into the grave, and this wood was put on me. And then my valuables were put uh, put on me in my hands, and they'd taken, you know, a kind of sheet or canvas, and they'd stretched this out above my head, and they shoveled dirt onto the grave so that I really had the feeling I was being buried alive. And after being in the grave for about an hour and a half, I mean, I don't know how long I'd be in there. I, I was resurrected, lifted out of the grave, blindfold taken off and run through these fields. And we came to a great circle of fire with music and hot wine and everyone danced until dawn. And then at dawn, to the best of our ability, we filled the graves and went back to New York. And that was the really the last big event. I mean, that was the end, you know. I began to realize I didn't want to do these things anymore, you know. I felt sort of becalmed, like that chapter in Moby Dick where the wind goes out of the sails. And then last winter, without uh, without thinking about it very much, I went to see this agent I know to tell him that I was interested in directing plays again. Actually, he seemed a little surprised to see that Rip Van Winkle was still alive. Hmm, this quail. God, I didn't know they were so small. Well, you know, frankly, I'm sort of repelled by the whole story, if you really want to know. What? Uh, yeah, who did you think I was? You know, I mean, that's the story of some kind of spoiled princess. You know, who did I think I was? The Shah of Iran? You know, I really wonder if people such as myself are really not Albert Speer, Wally. You know, Hitler's architect, Albert Speer? What? <laughs> no, I've been thinking a lot about him recently because, uh, I think I am Speer. And I think it's time that uh, I was caught and tried the way he was. What are you talking about? Well, you know, he was a very cultiva cultivated man, an architect, an artist. You know, he, so he thought the ordinary rules of life didn't apply to him either. I mean, I really feel that everything I've done is horrific. Just horrific. Oh my God, but why? You see, you see, I've seen a lot of death in the last few years, Wally. And there's one thing that's for sure about death. You do it alone. You see, that seems quite certain. You see, that I've seen. That the people around your bed mean nothing. Your reviews mean nothing. Whatever it is, you do it alone. And so the question is, when I get on my deathbed, what kind of a person am I going to be? And I'm just very dubious about the kind of person who would have lived his life the last few years the way I did. Why should you feel that way? You see, I've had a very rough time in the last few months, Wally. 
three different people in my family were put in the hospital at the same time. Then my mother died. Then Marina had something wrong with her back and we were just terribly worried about her, you know? So, so I mean, I'm, I'm feeling very raw right now. I mean, I, uh, I, I can't sleep. My nerves are shot. I, I'm affected by everything. You know, last week I had this really nice director uh, from Norway over for dinner and he's someone that I've known for years and he's somebody that I think I'm quite fond of. And I was sitting there and I was just thinking he was a pompous, defensive, conservative stuffed shirt who was just interested in the theater, you know? He was talking and talking and, you know, his mother had been a famous Norwegian comedian. I realized he had said, I remember my mother at least 400 times during the evening. And he was telling story after story about his mother, you know? I'd heard these stories 20 times in the past. He was drinking this bottle of bourbon very quietly. His laugh was so horrible, you know? I could hear his laugh, the pain in his laugh, the hollowness, you know? Like what being that woman's son had done to him you know so at a certain point i just had to ask him to leave nicely you know i i told him i had to get up early the next morning because it was so horrible it was just as if he had died in my living room and then you know i went to the bathroom and i cried because i felt i'd lost a friend and then after he'd gone i turned the television on and there was this guy who had just won something something you know, some sports event, some kind of great big check and some kind of huge silver bottle. And he, you know, he couldn't, couldn't stuff the check in the bottle. And he, (laughs) he put the bottle in front of his nose and he pretended it was his face. You know, he wasn't really listening to the guy who was interviewing him, but he was smiling uh, malevolently as at his friends. And I looked at the guy and I thought, what a horrible, empty, manipulative rat. And then I thought, that guy is me. And then last night, actually, you know, it was our 20th wedding anniversary. And I took Chiquita to sh- see the show about Billy Holiday. And I looked at these show business people who know nothing about Billy Holiday. Nothing. You see, they're really kind of, in a way, huh, intellectual creeps. And I suddenly had this feeling. I mean, I was just sitting there crying through most of the show. And I suddenly had this feeling I was just as creepy as they were. And that, my whole life had been a sham at that point. And I didn't have the guts to be Billy Holiday either. I mean, I really feel that I'm just washed up, wiped out. I feel I've just squandered my life. Andre, now, how can you say something like that? I mean... Well, you know, I may be in a very emotional state right now, Wally, but since I've come back home, I've just been finding the world we're living in more and more upsetting. I mean... Last week, I went down to the public theater one afternoon. You know, I walked in. I said hello to everybody because I know them all, and they all know me, and they're always very friendly. You know, that seven or eight people that told me how wonderful I looked, and then one person, one, a woman who runs the casting office said, gee, you look horrible. Something wrong? Now, she, you know, we started talking, of course. I started telling her things, and suddenly she burst into tears because an aunt of hers who's 80 whom she's very fond of, went into the hospital for a cataract, which was solved. But the nurse was so sloppy, she didn't put the bed rails up. So the aunt fell out of the bed and is now a complete cripple, you know? So, you know, we were talking about hospitals. Now this woman, because of someone who she is, you know, because this has happened to her very, very recently, she could see me with complete clarity. Uh-huh. She didn't know anything about what I'd been going through. But the other people... What they saw was this tan or this shirt or the fact 
that the shirt goes well with the tan. So they said, gee, you look wonderful. Now they're living in an insane dream world. They're not looking. That seems very strange to me. Right, because they just didn't see anything somehow except uh, the few little things that they wanted to see. Yeah, you know, it's like what happened to my mother just before she died. You know, we'd gone to the hospital to see my mother, and I went to see her, I went in to see her, and I saw this woman who looked as bad as any survivor of Auschwitz or Dachau, and I was out in the hall sort of comforting my father when a doctor who's a specialist in a problem that she had in her arm went in into her room and came out just beaming and he said boy do we don't we have a reason to feel great isn't it wonderful how she's coming along now all we saw was the arm that's all he saw or all he saw was the arm that's all he saw now here's another person who's existing in a dream who on top of that is kind of a butcher who's committed to to a kind of familial murder because when he comes out of the room he's psychically killing us by taking us into a dream world where we become confused and frightened because the moment before we saw somebody who already looked dead and now here comes a specialist who tells us they're in wonderful shape i mean you know they were literally driving my father crazy i mean you know here's an 82 year old man who's very emotional and you know if you go in one moment and you see the person's dying and you don't want them to die. And then a doctor comes out five minutes later and tells you they're in wonderful shape. I mean, you know, you, you can go crazy. Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, the doctor didn't see my mother. The people in the public theater didn't see me. I mean, we're just walking around in some kind of fog. I think we're all in a trance. We're walking around like zombies. I don't, I don't even think we're aware of ourselves or a reaction to things. We, we're just going all around all day in our unconscious machines. And meanwhile, there's all this rage and worry and uneasiness building up and building up inside us. That's right. It just, it just builds up. Uh, and then it just leaps out inappropriately. I mean, I remember when I was um, acting in this play based on The Master and Margarita by Bulkagov. And I was playing the part of the cat. But, but they had trouble uh, making the cat suit. So I didn't get it delivered to me till the night of the first performance, particularly the head. I mean, I never, I'd never even had a chance to try it on. And uh, about four of my fellow actors actually came up to me and they said things which I couldn't help thinking were attempts to destroy me, you know? One of them said, uh, Oh, well, now that head will totally change your hearing and your performance. Uh, you may hear everything completely differently, and it may be very upsetting. Now I, now I was once in a, a performance where I was wearing earmuffs, and I couldn't hear anything anybody said. And then another one said, Oh, you know, whenever I wear even a hat on stage, I tend to faint. I mean, those remarks were just full of hostility, because, I mean, you know, if, if I'd listened to those people... I would have gone out on that stage and I wouldn't have been able to, to hear anything and I would have fainted. But the hostility was completely inappropriate because, in fact, those people liked me. I mean, that hostility was just some feeling that was, you know, left over for some, from some previous experience. Because somehow in our social existence today, we're only allowed to express our feelings uh, weirdly, indirectly. If you express them directly, everybody goes crazy. Well, did you express your feelings about what those people said to you? No, I mean, I didn't even know what I felt until I thought about it later. I mean, at the most, you know, in a situation like that, 
even if I had known what I felt, I might say something if I'm really annoyed, like, uh, oh yeah, well, that's just fascinating. And uh, I probably will faint tonight, just as you did. I do just the same thing myself. We can't be direct, so we end up saying the weirdest things. I mean, I remember a night, it was a couple months, a couple weeks after my mother died, and I was in pretty bad shape. And I had dinner with three relatively close friends, two of whom had known my mother quite well, and three of whom had known me for years. You know that we went through the entire evening without my being able to, for a moment, get anywhere near what, you know, what I wanted to you know, not that I wanted to sit and have this dreary evening in which I was talking about all the pain I was going through and everything, really not at all, but the fact that nobody could say, gee, what a shame about your mother, or how are you feeling? It was just as if nothing had happened. They were all making these jokes and laughing, and I got quite crazy as a matter of fact. You know, one of these people mentioned a certain man whom I didn't like very much, and I started screeching about how he had just been found in the Bronx River and his penis had dropped off from gonorrhea and all these insane things. And then later when I got home, I realized I'd just been desperate to break through the, through this ice. Yep. And I mean, you do realize, Wally, that if you brought the situation into a Tibetan home, that'd just be so far out. I mean, they wouldn't even be able to understand it. I mean, that would just be simply simply so weird wally if four tibetans came together and this tragedy had just struck one of the ones and they had spent the evening going ha ha ho 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 he he <laughs> i mean you know tibetans would have looked at that and <laughs> and they would have thought that was the most unimaginable behavior behavior but for us that's common behavior uh-huh i mean really the Africans would have probably put their spears into all four of us because it would have been it would have driven them crazy. I mean, they would have thought we were dangerous animals or something like that. I mean, right? That's absolutely abnormal behavior. Is everything all right, gentlemen? Great. Yeah, but those are typical evenings for us. I mean, we go to dinner parties like that all the time. These evenings are really sort of like sickly dreams because people are talking and symbols. Everyone is sort of floating through this fog of symbols and unconscious feelings. No one says what they're really thinking. Then people will start making these jokes that are really some sort of secret code. Right. Well, what often happens in some of these evenings is that these really crazy little fantasies will just start being played with, you know, and everyone will be talking at once and sort of saying, uh, hey, wouldn't it be great if Frank Sinatra and Mrs. Nixon and blah, 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 blah were in such a situation, you know, Always with famous people and always sort of grotesque. Or people will be talking about some horrible thing like like uh, the death of that girl in the car with Ted Kennedy. And they'll just be roaring with laughter. I mean, it's really amazing. It's just unbelievable. That's the only way anything is expressed through these completely insane jokes. I mean, I, I think that's why I never understand what's going on at a party. I'm always completely confused. You know, uh, Debbie once said, after one of these New York evenings, she thought she'd traveled a, a greater distance just by journeying from her origins in the suburbs of that Chicago, of Chicago to that New York, to that New York evening. Uh, then her grandmother had traveled in uh, making her way from the steppes of Russia to the suburbs of Chicago. Oh, I think that's right. You know, it may be, it may be Wally, that one of the reasons that we don't know what's going on is that when we're there at a party, we're all too busy performing. Uh-huh. 
That was one of the reasons that uh, Grotowski gave up the theater. He just felt that people in their lives were performing so well that performance in the theater was kind of superfluous and in a way obscene. Huh. I mean, isn't it amazing how often a doctor will live up to our expectation of how a doctor should look? When you see a terrorist on television, he looks like a terrorist. I mean, we live in a world of which fathers or single people or artists are all trying to live up to someone's fantasy of how a father or a single person or an artist should look and behave. They all act as though, as if they know exactly how they ought to conduct themselves in every single moment. They all seem totally self-confident. Of course, privately, people are very mixed up about themselves. Yeah. They don't know what they should be doing in their lives. They're reading all these self-help books. Oh, God. And I mean, those books are just so touching because they show how desperately curious we all are to know how all the other how all the others of us are really getting on in life, even though by performing these roles all the time, we're just hiding the reality of ourselves from everybody else. I mean, we live in such ludicrous ignorance of each other. I mean, we usually don't even know the things we'd like to know, even about our supposedly closest friends. I mean... I mean, you know, suppose you're going through some kind of hell in your own life. Well, you, you would love to know. You would love to know if your friends have experienced similar things, but we just don't dare ask each other. No, it'd be like asking your friend to drop his role. I mean, we just put no value at all on perceiving reality. I mean, on the contrary, this incredible emphasis that we all place now on our so-called careers automatically makes perceiving reality a very low priority because if your life is organized around trying to be successful in a career, well, it, it just doesn't matter what you perceive or what you experience. You can really sort of shut your mind off for years ahead. In a way, you can sort of turn on the automatic pilot. You know, just the, the way your mother's doctors had this automatic pilot when he went in and he looked at the arm and he totally failed to perceive anything else. That's right. Our our minds are just focused on these goals and plans, which in themselves are not reality. No. Goals and plans are not. I mean, they're, they're fantasy. They're part of a dream life. I mean, you know, it, it always just does seem so ridiculous somehow that everybody has to have his little, his little goal in life. I mean, it's, it's so absurd in a way when you consider that it doesn't matter which one it is. Right, and because people's concentration is on their goals in their life, they just live each moment by habit, really like the Norwegian telling the same stories over and over again. Mm -hmm. Life becomes habitual, and it is today. I mean, very few things happen now, like that moment when Marlon Brando sent the Indian woman to accept the Oscar and everything went haywire. Things just very rarely go haywire now, and if you're operating by habit, then you're really not living. I mean... You know, in Sanskrit, the root verb of to be is the same as to grow or to make grow. Huh. Do you know about ROC? Hmm? Oh, well, ROC was a wonderful man. He was one of the founders of Finehorn, and he was one of Scotland's, well, he was one of Scotland's greatest mathematician, and he was the one, uh, one of the century's greatest mathematicians, and he prided himself on the fact that he had no fantasy life, no dream life, nothing to stand to nothing to stand be no imaginary life nothing to stand in between him and the direct prescription of mathematics and one day when he was in his mid-50s he was walking in the gardens of edinburgh and he saw a fawn the fawn was very surprised because fawns have always you know been able to see people 
but you know very few people ever see them and you know uh those little imaginary creatures not a deer oh you call them fawns don't you i thought a fawn was a baby deer yeah well there's a deer that's called a fawn but those are like these little imagine oh the the kind that wc yeah yeah yes right so so he got to know the fawn, and he got to know other fawns, and a series of conversations began, and more and more fawns would come out every afternoon to meet him, and he'd have these talks with the fawns, and then one day, after a while, when, you know, they really got to, to know him, they asked if, if he would like to meet Pan, because Pan would like to meet him. And, of course, Pan was afraid of terrifying him, because he knew of the Christian misconception which portrayed Pan as an evil creature, which he's not. But ROC said he would love to meet Pan, and so they met, and Pan indirectly sent him on his way to a journey in which the other people who began in which he met the other people who began Finehorn. But ROC used to practice certain exercises, like uh, for instance, if he were right handed, all today he would do everything with his left hand, all day, eating, writing, everything, opening doors in order to break the habits of living, because the great danger he felt for him, was to fall trance, uh, fall into a trance out of habit. He had the whole series of simple exercises that he had invented just to keep seeing, feeling, remembering. Because you have to learn. It didn't have to be necessary. But today you have to learn something. Like, uh, are you really hungry? Are you just stuffing your face? Because that's what you do out of habit. I mean, if you can afford to do it, so you do it, whether you're hungry or not. You know, if you go to the Buddhist meditation center, they make you taste each bite of your food, so it takes two hours. It's horrible to eat your lunch, but you're conscious of the taste of your food. If you're just eating out of habit, then you don't taste the food, and you're not conscious of the reality of what's happening to you. You enter the dream world again. Now, do you think maybe we live in this dream world because we do so many things every day that affect us in ways that somehow we're just not aware of? I mean, you know, I, I was thinking... Um, last Christmas, Debbie and I were given an electric blanket. I can tell you that it is just a marvelous advance over our old way of life. And it is just great, but, uh, it is quite different from not having an electric blanket. And I sometimes sort of wonder, well, what is it doing to me? I mean, I sort of feel, uh, I'm not sleeping quite in the same way. No, you wouldn't be. I mean, um, and my dreams are, are sort of different and, and. I feel a little bit different when I get up in the morning. I wouldn't put an electric blanket on for anything. First, I'd be worried I might get electrocuted. No, I don't trust technology. But I mean, the main thing, Wally, is that I think that's the kind of comfort that just separates you from reality in a very direct way. You mean... I mean, if you don't have an electric blanket and your apartment is cold and you need to put on another blanket or go to the closet and pile up coats on top of the blankets you have, well, then you know it's cold. And that sets up a link of things you have compassion for the per well is the person next to you cold are there other people in the world who are cold what a cold night i like the cold my god i never realized i don't want a blanket it's fun being cold i can snuggle up against you even even more because it's cold all sorts of things occur to you turn on that electric blanket and it's like taking a tranquilizer or it's like being lobotomized by watching television i think you entered the dream world again 
I mean, what does it do to us, Wally, living in an environment where something as massive as the seasons or winter or cold don't affect us in any way? I mean, we're animals after all. I mean, what does that mean? I think it means that instead of living under the sun and the moon and the sky and the stars, we're living in a fantasy world of our own making. Yeah, but I mean, I would never give up my electric blanket, Andre. I mean, because uh, New York is cold in the winter. I mean, our apartment is cold. It's a difficult environment. I mean, our lives are tough enough as it is. I'm not looking for ways to get rid of the few things that provide relief and comfort. I mean, on the contrary, I'm looking for more comfort because uh, the world is very abrasive. I mean, I'm trying to protect myself because really, there are these abrasive beatings to be avoided everywhere you look. Yeah, but Wally, don't, don't you see that comfort can be dangerous? I mean, you like to be comfortable, and I like to be comfortable too, but comfort can lull you into a dangerous tranquility. I mean, my mother knew a woman, Lady Hatfield, who's one of the richest women in the world, and she died of starvation because all she would eat was chicken. I mean, she just liked chicken, Wally, and that was all she would eat. And actually, her body was so starving, but she didn't know because she was quite happy eating her chicken, so she finally died. See, I honestly believe that we're all like Lady Hatfield now. We're living a lovely, comfortable time with our electric blankets and our chicken, and meanwhile, we're starving because we're so cut off from contact with reality that we're really not getting any sustenance because we don't see the world. We don't see ourselves. We don't see how our actions affect other people. Have you read Martin Buber's book on hatism? No. Oh, well, here's a view of life. He talks of the belief of the, Hasi the Hasidic Jews that there are spirits chained in everything, and there are spirits chained in you, and there are spirits chained in me. Well, there are spirits chained in this table, and our prayer is the action of liberating these enchained embryo-like spirits, and that every action in, our, in ours in life, whether it's uh, doing business or making love or having dinner together or whatever, that, uh, that every action of ours should be like a prayer, a sacrament in the world. Now, do you think we're living like that? Why do you think we're not living like that? And I think it's because if we allowed ourselves to, to see what we do every day, we might just find it too nauseating. I mean, the way we treat other people. I mean, you know, every day, several times a day, I walk into the apartment building, the doorman calls me Mr. Gregory, and I call him Jimmy. All right, that's the difference between the southern plantation owner who's got slaves. You know, I think that act of murder, that an act of murder is being committed, uh in that moment when I walk into the building. You know, because here's a dignified, intelligent man, a man of my own age, and when I call him Jimmy, then he becomes a child, and I'm an adult because I can buy my way into the building. Right, that's right. I mean, my God, when I, when, when I was a Latin teacher, I mean, people used to treat me, I mean, uh, you know, if I would go to a party of professional or literary people, I mean, I was, I was treated uh, in the nicest sense of the word, like a dog. I mean, in other words, there was no question uh, of my being able to participate on an equal basis in a conversation with people. I mean, you know, I, I'd occasionally have conversations with people, but then uh, when they asked me what I did, which would always happen after about five minutes, you know, their faces, I mean, e even if they were enjoying the conversation or they, they were flirting with me or, or whatever it was, you know, their faces would just have that expression, like the the port portcullis port portcullis like the portcullis crashing down you know those medieval gates they would just walk away i mean 
literally, I lived like a dog. And I mean, when Debbie was working as a secretary, you know, she would tell people what she did and they would just go insane. I mean, it would be as if she had just said, oh, well, I've been serving a life sentence recently for child murdering. I mean, my God, you know, when, when you talk, when you talk about our attitudes towards other people, I mean, I think of myself as just a very decent, good person, you know, just because I, I think I'm reasonably friendly to most of the people I happen to meet every day. I mean, I really think myself quite smugly. I, I just think I'm a perfectly nice guy, you know? So long as I, so long as I think of the world as, as consisting of you know, just the small circle of the of peop of the people that I know as friends, or, or the few people that we know in this little world of our hobbies, the theater or whatever it is, and I'm really quite self-satisfied. I'm I'm just quite happy with myself. I just have no complaint about myself. Huh. I mean, you know, let's face it. I I mean, there's there's a whole enormous world out there that I just don't ever think about. I. I certainly don't take responsibility for how I've lived in that world. I mean, you know, I, if I were actually to sort of uh, confront the fact that I'm sort of sharing the stage with, with, with this starving person in Africa somewhere, well, I wouldn't feel so great about myself. So naturally, I just, I just blot all those people right out of my perception. So of course, of course, I'm ignoring a whole section of the real world. But frankly, you know, when I read a play, in a way, one of the things I guess I think I'm trying to do is I'm trying to bring myself up against some little bits of reality. I'm trying to share that uh, with the audience. I mean, I mean, of course, we all know the theater in it is it's in terrible shape today. I, I mean, I mean, at least a few years ago, people who really cared about the theater used to say, the theater is dead. And now everybody's redefined the theater in such a trivial way that, I mean, I mean, God, I know people who are involved with the theater who, who go to see things now that, I mean, a few years ago, these same people would have just been embarrassed to have even seen some of these plays. I mean, they would have just shrunk, you know, just in horror at at the superficiality of these things. But now they say, oh, that was pretty good. It's just incredible. And I really just find that attitude unbearable because I really do think the theater can do something very important. I mean, I do think the theater can help bring people in contact with reality. Now, now you may not feel that way at all. I mean, you may find that just totally absurd. Yeah, but Wally, don't you see the dilemma? You're not taking into account the period we're living in. I mean, of course that's what the theater should do. I mean, I've always felt that. You know, when I was a young director and I directed at the Baca in Yale, my impulse was Pentheus had been killed by his mother and the Furies, and they pulled the tree back, and they tie him to the tree and fling him into the air, and he flies into space as he's killed, and they rip him into shreds, I guess cut off his head. My impulse was that the thing to do was get a head from the New Haven morgue and pass it around the audience. Now, I wanted Agave to bring on a real head that his head should be passed around the audience so that somehow people realize that this stuff was real. See, that this stuff is real. Now, the actress playing Agave absolutely refused to do it. Uh, you know, Gordon Craig used to talk about why is there gold or silver in the churches or something the great cathedrals when actors could be wearing gold and silver i mean people who saw eleanor dues in the last couple years of her life wally 
They said that it was like seeing light on stage or mist or the essence of something. I mean, then when you think about Bertolt Brecht and how he created a theater in which people could observe, that was vastly entertaining and exciting, but in which the excitement didn't overwhelm you. He somehow allowed you the distance between the play and yourself. In fact, two human beings need in order to live together. You know, the question is whether the theater now can do for an audience what Breck tried to do or what Craig or Dews tried to do. Can they do it now? Because you see, I think that people today are so deeply asleep that unless, you know, you're putting on these sort of superficial plays that help your audience to sleep more comfortably, it's very hard to know what to do in the theater. Because you see, I think that if you put on serious contemporary plays by writers like yourself, you may only be helping to deaden the audience in a different way. What do you mean? Well, I mean, Wally, how does it affect the audience to put one of these plays in which you show people that are totally isolated and they can't reach out to each other and their lives are desperate? Or how does it affect them to see a play that shows our world is full of nothing but shocking sexual events and terror and violence? Does that help to wake up a sleeping audience? See, I don't think so, because I think it's the, very likely that the picture of the world that you're showing them in a play like that is exactly the picture of the world they have already. And I mean, you know their own lives and relationships are difficult and painful, and if they watch the news on television, well, what they see is a terrifying, chaotic universe full of rapes and murders and hands cut off by subway cars and children pushing their parents out of windows. So the play tells them that the impression of the world is correct and that there's absolutely no way out. There's nothing they can do, and they end up feeling passive and impotent. I mean, look look at something like the christening that my group arranged for me in the forest in Poland. Well, there is an example of something that really had all the elements of theater, and it was worked on carefully, and it was thought about carefully. It was done with exquisite taste and magic. And they, in fact, created something which, in this case, was in a way, just for an audience of one, just for me. But they created something that had ritual, love, surprise, denouement, beginning, a middle, and an end, and was an incredibly beautiful piece of theater. And the impact that it had on its audience, on me, was somehow a totally positive one. I didn't, it didn't deaden me. It brought me to life. Yeah, but I mean, are you saying that it's impossible? I mean, I mean, I mean, isn't it a little upsetting to come to the conclusion that there's uh, no way to wake people up anymore except to involve them in some kind of strange um, christening in in Poland or, or some kind of strange experience on top of Mount Everest. I mean, because you know that awful, the awful thing is if you really say that it's, it's necessary to uh, take everybody to Everest, it's, it's really tough because everybody can't be taken to Everest. I mean, there must have been periods in history when it would have been possible to uh, save the patient through less drastic measures. I mean, there must have been periods when in order to give people a strong or meaningful experience, you wouldn't actually have to take them to Everest. But you do now, in some way or another. You do now. I mean, you know, there was a time when you could have just, for instance, written, uh, I don't know, Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen. And I'm sure the people who read it had a, a pretty strong experience. I'm sure they did. I mean, all right, now you're you're saying that people today wouldn't get it. Maybe that's true, but I mean, there there are, isn't there any kind of writing or any kind of play that, I mean, isn't, 
it's still legitimate for writers to try to portray reality so that people can see it? I, I mean, really, tell me, why do we require a trip to Mount Everest in order to be able to perceive one moment of reality? I mean, I mean, is Mount Everest more real than New York? I mean, isn't New York real? I mean, you see, I, I think if you could become a full, become fully aware of what existed in the cigar store next door to this restaurant, I, I think it would just blow your brains out. I mean, I mean, isn't there just as much reality to be perceived in a cigar store as there is on Mount Everest? I mean, what do you think? You, you see, I think that not only is there nothing more real about Mount Everest, I, th I think there's nothing that different in a certain way. I mean, because reality is is uniform in a way so that if your if your perceptions are i mean if your own mechanism is is operating correctly it would become irrelevant to go to mount everest and sort of absurd because i mean it just i mean of course on some level i mean obviously it's very different from a cigar store on 7th avenue avenue but i mean well, I agree with you, Wally, but the problem is that people can't see the cigar store now. I mean, things don't affect people the way they used to. I mean, it may be very well that 10 years from now, people will pay $10,000 in cash to be castrated just in order to be affected by something. Well, why do you think that is? I mean, why is that? I mean, is it just because people are, are lazy today or they're bored? I mean, are, are we just like bored, spoiled children who've just been lying in the bathtub all day just playing with their plastic duck and now they're just thinking well what can i do okay yes we're bored we're all bored now but has it ever occurred to you wally that the process that creates this boredom that we see in the world now may be a very self-perpetuating unconscious form of brainwashing by a world totalitarian government based on money and that all this is much more dangerous than one thinks and it's not just a question of individual survival, Wally, but that somebody who's bored, uh, somebody who's bored is asleep, and that somebody who's asleep will not say no. See, I keep meeting these people. I mean, uh, just a few days ago, I met this man whom I greatly admire. He's a Swedish physicist, Gustav Bjornstrand, and he told me that he's he no longer watches television. He doesn't read newspapers, and he doesn't read magazines. He's completely cut them out of his life because he doesn't feel that we're living in some kind of Orwellian nightmare now, and that everything that you hear now contributes to turning into a, a robot. And when I was at Feinhorn, I met this extraordinary English tree expert who had devoted his entire life to saving trees. Just got back from Washington, lobbying to save the Redwoods. He's 84 years old, and he travels with a backpack because he never knows where he's going to be tomorrow. And when I met him in Finehorn, he said to me, where are you from? And I said, New York. And he said, ah, New York. That's a very interesting place. Do you know a lot of New Yorkers who keep talking about the fact that they want to leave but never do? And I said, oh, yes. And he said, why don't you think they leave? And I gave him very banal theories. And he said, oh, I don't think that's the way at all. And he said, I think New York is the new model for the new concentration camp where the camp has been built by the inmates themselves and the inmates are the guards. And they have this pride in this thing they've built. They've built their own prison. And so they exist in little plays people have written and reading the reviews of those plays and what people say, said about them and what people said about what people said. And I mean... And I, I have I have a list of errands and responsibilities that I keep in a notebook. I enjoy going through the notebook, carrying out responsibilities, doing the errands, and crossing them off the list. We exist in a state of schizophrenia where they're both guards and prisoners, and as a result, they 
they no longer have having been lobotomized the capacity to leave the prison they've made or even to see it as a prison and then he went into his pocket and he took out a seed for a tree and he said this is a pine tree he put it in my hand and said escape before it's too late see actually for two or three years now chiquita and i have had this very unpleasant feeling that we really should get out that we feel like jews in germany in the late 30s get out of here of course the problem is where we go because it seems quite obvious that the whole world is going in the same direction. See, I think it's quite possible that the 1960s represented the last burst of human being before he was extinguished, and that this is the beginning of the rest of the future now, and that from now on, there will simply be these robots walking around feeling nothing, thinking nothing, and there will be nobody left almost to remind them that there was once this species called a human being with feelings and thoughts and that history and memory are right now being erased and soon nobody will remember that life existed on the planet. Now, of course, Bjornstan feels that there's really almost no hope and that we're really probably going back to a very savage, lawless, terrifying period. Finehorn people see it a little differently. They're feeling there'll be these little pockets of light springing up in different parts of the world and that these will be, in a way, invisible planets on this planet, and that as we, or the world, grow colder, we can take invisible space journeys to these different planets, refuel for what we need to do on the planet itself, and come back. And it's their feeling that there have to be these centers now where people can come and reconstruct a new future for the world. And when I was talking to uh, Gustav Bjornstrand, he was saying that actually these centers are growing up everywhere now, and that's what they're trying to do, which is what Feinhorn was trying to do, and in a way, what I was trying to do. I mean, these things can't be given names, but in a way, these are all attempts at creating a new kind of school or a new kind of monastery. And Bjornstrand talks about the concept of reserves, islands of safety, where history can be remembered and the human being can continue to function in order to maintain the species through a dark age. In other words, we're talking about an underground, which did exist in a very different way during the dark ages amongst the mystical orders of the church. And the purpose of this underground is to find out how to preserve the light, life, the culture, how to keep things living. You see, I keep thinking that we what we need is a new language, uh, a language of heart, a language as in Polish forest, where language wasn't needed. Some kind of language between people that is a kind of poetry that's poetry of the dancing bee that tells us where the honey is. And I think that in order to create that language, you're going to have to learn how you can go through a looking glass and into another kind of perception where you have that sense of being united all things and suddenly you understand everything. Are you ready for some dessert? Uh, I think I'll just have an espresso. Thank you. Very good. Uh, I'll have uh, I'll have one. Thank you. And uh, could I also have uh, an amaretto? Certainly, sir. Thank you. You see, Wally, there's this incredible building that they built at Finehorn, and the man who designed it had never designed anything in his life. He wrote children's books, and some people wanted to be on some wanted it to be a sort of hall of meditation, and others wanted it to be a kind of lecture hall. But the psychic part of the community wanted it to serve another function as well because. They wanted it to be the kind of spaceship which at night could rise up and let the UFOs know that this was a safe place to land and that they would find friends there. So the problem was, because it needed a massive kind of roof, 
was how to have a roof that would stay on the building, but at the same time be able to fly up at night and meet the flying saucers. So the architect meditated and meditated, and he finally came up with a very simple solution of not actually joining the roof to the building, which means that it should fall off because they have great gales up there in northern Scotland. So to keep them from falling off, he got beach stones from the beach, or weeded because I, I worked on the building, all up and down the roof, just like that. And the idea was that the energy that would flow from stone to stone would become so strong, you see, that it would keep the roof down under any conditions. But at the same time, if the roof needed to go up, it would be a light enough to go up. Well, it works, you see. Now, architects don't know why it works, and it shouldn't work because it should fall off, but it works. It does work. The gales blow and the roof should fall off, but it doesn't fall off. Yeah. Well, do you, do you know my, my actual, do you want to know my actual response to this? I, do you want to hear my actual response? Yes. See my actual response. I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm just trying to, to survive, you know? I mean, I'm just trying to earn a living, just trying to pay my rent, my bills. I mean, uh, I live my life. I, I, I enjoy staying at home with Debbie. I'm reading Charlton Heston's autobiography. And that's that. I mean, you know, I, I mean, occasionally maybe Debbie and I will step outside. We'll go to a party or something. Uh, and if I can occasionally get my little talent together and write a little play, well, then that's just, that's just wonderful. And I mean, I enjoy reading about other little plays people have written and, and reading the reviews of those plays and, and what people have said about them and what people said about what people said. And, and I mean, I have, I have a list of errands and responsibilities that I keep in a notebook. I, I enjoy going through the notebook, carrying out the responsibilities, doing the errands and crossing them off the list. And I mean, I just, I just don't know how anybody could enjoy anything more than I enjoy reading Charlton Heston's autobiography or, or you know, uh, uh, getting up in the morning and having a cup of cold coffee that's been waiting for me all night, still there for me to drink in the morning and, and no cockroach or fly has, has died in it overnight. I mean, I'm just so thrilled when I get up and I see that coffee there just the way I wanted it. I mean, I, I just can't imagine how anybody could enjoy something else any more than that. I mean, I'm, I mean, obviously if the cockroach, if there's a dead cockroach in it, well, then, then I have a, a feeling of disappointment and I'm sad. But I mean, I just, I just don't think I feel the need for anything more than all of this. Whereas, you know, you, you seem to be saying that uh, it's, it's inconceivable. I wanted to say the word inconceivable so badly as well, Ishan. That anybody could have, have could be having a, a meaningful life today. And, and, you know, everyone is totally destroyed and and we all need to live in these outposts but i mean you know i just i can't believe even for you i mean don't you find isn't it pleasant just to get up in the morning and there's chiquita there are the children and uh the times is delivered you can read it i i mean maybe you'll direct a play maybe you won't direct a play but forget about the play that you may or may not direct why is it necessary to why not lean back and just enjoy these details i mean and there'd be a delicious cup of coffee a piece of coffee cake i mean why is it necessary to have more than this or to even think about having more than this i mean i don't really know what you're talking about i mean i mean i i know what you're talking about but i i don't really know what you're talking about 
And I mean, you know, even if I were to totally agree with you, you know, and, and even if I were to accept the idea that there's just no way for anybody to have personal happiness now, well, you know, I, I still couldn't accept the idea that the way to make life wonderful would be to just totally, you know, re reject Western civilization and, and fall back into some kind of belief in some kind of weird something. I mean, I don't even know how to begin talking about this, but, you, you know, in the Middle Ages, before the arrival of, of scientific thinking as we know it today, well, people could believe anything. Anything could be true. The statue uh, of the Virgin Mary could speak or bleed or, or whatever it is. But the wonderful thing that happened was that then in the development of science in the Western world, certain things did come slowly to be known and understood. I mean, you know, uh, obviously all ideas in science are constantly being revised. I mean, that's that's the whole point. But we do at least know that the universe has some shape and order and that, you know, trees do not turn into people or goddesses, and there are very good reasons why they don't. You can't just believe absolutely anything. Whereas the things that you're talking about, I mean, I mean, you found the, the handprint in, in the book, and, and there, were, there were three Andres and, and one Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, and to me, that is a coincidence. But, and, and then, you know, the people who, who put that book together, well, they had their own reasons for putting it together. But to you, it was significant, as if that book had been written 40 years ago so that you would see it, as if it was planned for you in a way. I mean, really, I mean, I mean, all right, let's say if I get a fortune cookie in a Chinese restaurant, I mean, of course, even I have a tendency. I mean, you know, I, I mean, of course, I, I would hardly throw it out. I mean, I, I, I read it, I read it, and... Uh, I just instinctively sort of, you know, if it says something like, uh, a conversation with a dark-haired man will be very important to you. Well, I just instinctively think, you know, who do I know has dark hair? Do we, did we have a conversation? What do we talk about? In other words, uh, there's something in me that makes me read it, and, and I instinctively interpret it as if it were an omen of the future. But in my conscious opinion which is so fundamental to my whole view of life. I, I, I mean, I would, I would just have to change totally to not have this opinion. In my, in my conscious opinion, this is simply something that was written in the cookie factory several years ago and in no way refers to me. I mean, you know, the, the fact that I, I got it, I mean, the man who wrote it did not know anything about me. I mean, he could not have known anything about me. There's no way that this cookie could actually have to do with me. And the fact that I've gotten it is basically a joke. I mean, if, if I were going to go on a trip on an airplane and I got a fortune cookie that said, don't go, I mean, of course, I, I admit, I might feel a bit nervous for about one second. But in fact, I would go because, I mean, that trip is going to be successful or unsuccessful based on the state of the airplane and the state of the pilot and... And the cookie is in no position to know about that. And, and I mean, you know, it's, it's the same way with any kind of uh, uh, prophecy or a sign or an omen. Because if you believe in omens, then that means that, that the universe, I mean, I don't even know how to begin to describe this. What, that means that the future is somehow sending messages backwards to the present, which, 
which means that the future must exist in some sense already in order to be able to send these messages. And it also means that things in the universe are, are there for a purpose, to give us messages, whereas I think that things in the universe are, are just there. I mean, they don't mean anything. I mean, you know, if the turtle's eggs egg falls out of the tree and, and splashes on the, the paving stones, it's just because that turtle was clumsy by accident. And, 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 and to describe whether to send my ships off to war on that basis uh, seems like a big mistake to me. Well, what information would you send your ships to war on? Because if it's all meaningless, what's the difference whether you accept the fortune cookie or the statistics of the Ford Foundation? It doesn't seem to matter. Well, the meaningless fact uh, of the fortune cookie or the turtle's eggs can't possibly have any relevance to the subject you're analyzing. Whereas a, a group of meaningless facts that are collected and interpreted in a scientific way may quite possibly be relevant because the wonderful thing about scientific theories, about things that are based on experiments that, that can be repeated. Hmm. Well, it's true, Wally. I mean, you know, following omens and so on is probably just a way of letting ourselves off the hook so we don't have to take individual responsibility for our own actions. But I mean, <clears throat> giving yourself over to the unconscious can leave you vulnerable to all sorts of frightening manipulation. And in all the work that I was involved in, there was, this, there was always that danger. And there was always that question of tampering with people's lives. Because if I lead one of these workshops, then I do become partly a doctor and partly a therapist and partly a priest. And I'm not a doctor or a therapist or a priest. And already some of these new monasteries or communities or whatever we've been talking about are becoming institutionalized. And I guess, in a, even in a way, at times sort of fant uh, fascistic. Uh, you know, there's this sort of self-satisfied elitist paranoia that grows up, a, a feeling of them and us that is very unsettling. But I mean, uh, the thing is, Wally, I think that the exaggerated worship of science that has led us into this situation, I think it's, yeah, I think it's the exaggerated worship of science that has led us into this situation. I mean, science has been held up as this magical force that would somehow solve everything well quite the contrary it's done quite the contrary it's destroyed everything so that is what has really led i think to this very strong deep reaction against science that we're seeing now just as the nazi demons that were released in the 30s in germany were probably a reaction against a certain oppressive kind of knowledge and culture and rational thinking so i agree that we're about we're talking about something potentially very dangerous, but modern science has not been particularly less dangerous. Right. Well, I agree with you. I completely agree. No, you know, the truth is, I, I think I do know what really disturbs me about the work you've described. And I don't even know if I can express it, but, but somehow it seems that the whole point of the work that you did in those workshops, when you get right down to it, and when you ask... What was it really about? The whole point, really, I think, was to enable the people in the workshops, including yourself, to somehow uh, to somehow sort of strip away every scrap of pur purposefulness from certain selected moments. And the point of it was so that you was so that you would then all be able to experience somehow, just pure being. In other words, you were trying to discover what it would be like to live for certain moments without having any particular thing that you were supposed to be doing. And I think I just 
simply object to that. I mean, I just don't think I accept the idea that there should be moments in which you're not trying to do anything. I think it's our, our nature uh, uh, to do things. I, I think we should do things. I think that purposefulness is part of our ineradicable basic human structure. And, and to say that we ought to be able to live without it is like saying that uh, a tree ought to be able to live without branches or roots. But, but actually, without branches or roots, it wouldn't be a tree. I, I mean, it would just be a log. Do you see what I'm saying? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I mean, in other words, if I'm sitting at home and I have nothing to do, well, I, I naturally reach for a book. I mean, what would be so great about just sitting there and and doing nothing? It just seems absurd. And if Debbie is there? Well, I, the same thing. I mean, I, I mean, is there really such a thing as um, two people doing nothing but just being together? I mean, would they simply just be uh, relating, to use the word that we're always using? I mean, what would that mean? I mean... I mean, either we're, we're going to have a, a conversation or we're going to carry out the garbage or we're going to do something separately or together. I mean, do you, do you see what I'm saying? I, I mean, what does it mean to just uh, simply sit there? That makes you nervous. Well, well, why shouldn't it make me nervous? It just seems ridiculous to me. That's interesting, Wally. You know... You know, when I went to Ladka in Western Tibet and I stayed on a farm there for a month, well, there, you know, there, when people came over in the evening for tea, nobody says anything unless there's something to say, but there almost never is. So they just sit there and drink their tea and it doesn't seem to bother them. I mean, you see, the trouble, Wally, with always being active and doing these things is that I think it's quite possible to do all sorts of things at the same time and be completely dead inside. I mean, you're doing all these things, but are you doing them because you really feel an impulse to do them, or are you doing them mechanically, as you were saying before? Because I really do believe that if you're just living mechanically, then you have to change your life. I mean, you know, when you're young, you, you go out on dates all the time, you go dancing or something, you're floating free, and then one day, suddenly, you find yourself in a relationship. And suddenly everything freezes. And this can be true in your work as well. And I mean, of course, if you're really alive inside, then of course there's no problem. I mean, of course, uh, I mean, you're, you're living with somebody in, in one little room. And there's this going on between you and the person you're living with. And well, then a whole adventure can be going on right in that room. But there's always this danger that things can go dead then I really think you have to kind of become a hobo or something, you know, like Kerouac and go out on the road. I really believe that. You know, it's not that wonderful to spend your life on the road. My own overwhelming preference is to stay in, in that one room if you can. But, you know, if you live with somebody for a long time, people are constantly saying, well, of course it's not as great as it used to be, but that's only natural. The first blush of a romance goes, and then the that's the way that it has to be now i totally disagree with that but i do think that you have to constantly ask yourself the question with total frankness is your marriage still a marriage is the sacramental element there just as you have to ask about the sacramental element in your work is is it still there i mean it's very it's a very frightening thing wally to have to suddenly realize that my god I thought I was living my life, but in fact, I haven't been a human being. I've been a performer. 
I haven't been living. I've been acting. I've I've acted in this role as of the father. I've acted the role of the husband. I've acted the role of the friend. I've acted the role of the writer or the director or what have you. I've lived in the same room with this person, but I haven't really seen them. I haven't really heard them. I haven't really been with them. Yeah, I know some people are just sometimes uh, existing side by side. I mean, the other person's uh, face could just turn into a, a great wolf's face and it wouldn't be noticed. And it wouldn't be noticed. No, it wouldn't be noticed. I mean... When I was in Israel a little while ago, I mean, I have this picture of Chiquita that was taken when she, I always carry it with me. Uh, I, it was, it was taken when she was about 26 or something and it's in the summer and she's stretched out on a terrace and this some old fashioned long skirt that's kind of pulled up and she's slim and sensual and beautiful. And I've always looked at that picture and just thought about how sexy she looks. And then last year in Israel, I looked at the picture and I realized that the face in the picture was just the saddest face in the world. The girl at that time was just lost, so sad and alone, you know? I've been carrying that picture for years and not ever really seeing what it is, you know? I, I just never really looked in the picture. And then at a certain point, I just realized I'd gone for a good 18 years unable to feel except the most extreme situations. And I mean, to some extent... I still had the ability to live in my work, and that was why I was such a work junkie. And that was why I felt that every play I did was a matter of life or death. But in my real life, I was dead. I was a robot. I mean, I didn't even allow myself to get angry or annoyed. I mean, you know, today, Chiquita, Nicholas, Marina, all day long, as people do, they do things that annoy me and say things that annoy me. And today I get annoyed and they say, why are you annoyed? And I say, because you're annoying, you know? <laughs> and and when I allowed myself to consider the possibility of not spending the rest of my life with Chiquita, I realized that what I wanted most in my life was to always be with her. But at that time, I hadn't learned what it would be like to let yourself react to another human being. And if you can't react to another person, then there's no possibility of action or interaction. And there isn't. I don't really know what the word love means, except duty, obligation, sentimentality, fear. I mean, I don't know about you, Wally, but I just had to put myself into kind of a training program to learn how to be a human being. I mean, how did I feel about anything? I didn't know. What kind of things did I like? What kind of people did I really want to be with, you know? And the only way that I could think of, of to find out was to cut all the noise and just stop performing all the time and just listen to what was inside me. See, I think a time comes when you need to do that. Now, maybe in order to do it, you have to go to the Sahara and maybe you can do it at home, but you need to cut out the noise. Yeah, of course. Personally, I, I, I just, I, I usually don't, um, like those quiet moments you know I, I really don't i mean i i don't know if that's uh, a freudian thing or what but you know the fear of, of unconscious impulses or my own aggression or whatever but if things get too quiet and i find myself just sitting there you know and as if we're just as if we were saying before i, I mean whether i'm by myself or I'm, I'm 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 with someone else i just i i have this this feeling of my God, I'm going to be 
revealed. In other words, I'm adequate to do any sort of task, um, but I'm not adequate just just to just to be a human being. I mean, in other words, I'm not. If I'm I'm just uh, trapped there, I'm not allowed to do things that I'm not allowed. I'm not allowed to do things, but all I can do is just um, be there. Uh, well, I just, I just fail. I mean, in other words, I can pass any other sort of test. You know, I, I, I can even get an A if I if I put in the required effort. But I, I just don't, I don't have a, a clue how to pass this test. I mean, I mean, of course, I realize this isn't a test, but. I see it as a test. I feel I'm going to fail it. I mean, it's very scary. I just, I, I feel, I feel totally at sea. I mean, well, you know, I could imagine a life, Wally, in which each day would become incredible, a monumental creative task, and we're not necessarily up to it. I mean, if you feel like walking out on the person you live with, you'd walk out. Then, if you felt like it, you'd come back, but Meanwhile, the other person would have reacted to your walking out. It would be a life of such a feeling. And I mean, what was amazing about the workshops I led was how quickly people seemed to fall into enthusiasm, celebration, joy or wonder, abandon, wildness, tenderness. Could we stand to live like that? Yeah. I think it's that moment of contact with another person. I mean, that's that's what scares us. I mean... That moment of being face-to-face -face with another person. I mean, now, you wouldn't think it would be so frightening. It's, it's strange that we find it so frightening. Well, it isn't that strange. I mean, first of all, there are some pretty good reasons for being frightened. I mean, you know, the human being is a complex and dangerous creature. I mean, really, if you start living each moment, Christ, well, that's quite a challenge. I mean, if you really, really reach out and you're really in touch with the other person, well... That something is, uh, well, that is really something to strive for. I really, I, I think, I really do. Yeah, it's just so pathetic if one doesn't do that. Of course, there's the problem because the closer you come, I think another, I think to another human being, the more completely mysterious and unreachable that person becomes. I mean, you, you know... <laughs> You have to reach out, and you have to go back and forth with them, and you have to relate, and you're relating to a ghost or something. I don't know, because we're ghosts, we're phantoms. Who who are we? And that's to face, to confront that fact that you're completely alone, and to accept that you're alone is to accept death. You mean because somehow when you are alone, you're alone with death. I mean... Nothing's obstructing your view of it or something like that. Right. You know, if I understood it correctly, I think Heidegger said that uh, if you were to experience your own being to the full, you'd be experiencing the decay of that being toward death as a, a part of your experience. You know, in the sexual act, there's that moment of completely forgetting, which is so incredible. Then the next moment, you start to think of things, work on the play, what you've got to do tomorrow. I don't know if this is true of you, but I think it is quite common. The world comes in quite fast. Now, that again may be because we're afraid to stay in that place of forgetting, because that again is close to death. Like, 
people who are afraid to go to sleep. In other words, you interrelate and you don't know what goes, you don't know what the next morning will bring and, and not to know uh, what the next moment, and oh, sorry, and not to know what the next moment will bring brings you closer to a perception of death. And you see, that's why I think people have affairs. I mean, you know, in the theater, if you get good reviews, uh, for the moment, you've got to, you've got your hands on something. You've got, you know what I mean? It's a good feeling, but the feeling goes quite quickly. And once again, you, you don't quite know what you should do next. What'll happen? Well, have an affair and up to a certain point, you can really feel that you're on firm ground. You know, there's a sexual conquest to be made. There are different questions. Does she enjoy the ears being nibbled? How intensely can I talk to you about shopping hour and at some elegant French restaurant? Whatever nonsense it is, I, I think it gives you the semblance that there's firm earth. Well, have a real relationship with the person that goes on for years. That's completely unpredictable. You've cut off all the ties to the land and you're sailing into the unknown, into uncharted seas. Uh, I mean, you know, people hold on to images of their father, mother, husband, wife for the same reasons. Because they provide some firm ground, but there's no wife there. You know what I mean? A wife, a husband, a son, a baby holds your hands and there's suddenly this huge man lifting you off the ground and then he's gone. Where's that son? All the other customers seem to have left hours ago. We got the bill. Andre paid for our dinner. I treated myself to a taxi. I rode home through the city streets. There wasn't a street, there wasn't a building that wasn't connected to some memory in my mind. There I was buying a suit with my father. There I was having an ice cream soda after school. When I finally came in, Debbie was home from work and I told her everything about my dinner with Andre. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, first of all, Encore, brava. Wow. How are your pipes holding up? I don't know. I mean, I was like, by the end of it, I wasn't sure if I had low blood sugar and I was like <laughs> unable to like read the next word that was coming after the next word. It's funny. Eh? When like you get into like, I found that because I only had a couple of monologues, like to the extent that you did, but like I start out strong and then somewhere in the middle, your brain breaks. Yeah. And you're just having a hard time keeping on track. That was exactly it. Yeah. I was like, am I reading the next the next word and is this making sense or did I skip a line or is this the way that everyone's supposed to feel reading this play? Well, and the challenge is um, it's not written narratively at all. It's written so much in the way people talk casually. Right. And so some of the sentences are so grammatically off and if they're spoken properly and you know what you're supposed to be saying, which we didn't, let's make that very clear. We've right. never looked at this ahead of time. Yeah, everything was around a corner that we couldn't see. Right, and, and Wally stutters a lot and all of these stutters are in there and all these false starts it was very hard to make that seem natural yeah. but uh remarkably well done i asked you to be andre 
just because the only two things I knew were that Wally's a playwright and that's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And also he says the word inconceivable like he does in The Princess Pride. Those are the only two reasons I wanted to be Wally. I didn't know I was completely blindsiding you with like <laughs> the most intense. <laughs> <laughs> no, I totally, I, I knew that, that you had no idea the way the play went because I, I don't think that you would have said, hey, I want to be Wally. <laughs> no. Like I think there would have been a little more conversation about it, but that's that's the way my dinner with Andre goes. What did we learn? Do we like it? Do you want to prop up your microphone just a little bit? I don't know if you can. Yeah, like... just one sec. Yeah, yeah. I'm just going to check my, my sugar. I, I don't know what we learned. I think we learned that there are different ways of approaching life and happiness. And I think, you know, if you if you go too far into the weeds, you're just going to drive yourself crazy either way. There wasn't a lot of conflict. I mean, other than a lot of difference of opinion. They, I figured at some point they might have like a genuine argument. And I guess towards like in the last 10 pages there was kind of this like where wally gets really intense about like you're being pretentious you don't have to go to the sahara desert or mount everest in order to experience life like get over yourself right but then also andre's completely completely deconstructing what life is and so it's really hard they're not on the same page they're not on the same page they and they're they're struggling to even find ground like common ground do you think that you do you think that it ended kind of abruptly because i'm i'm surprised that they're still basically in the thick of this existential conversation and then suddenly the voiceover comes back and he's like and that was my dinner with andre yeah they didn't didn't really get anything they didn't even really say like okay see ya well yeah considering it starts with wally's trip there to the restaurant and then he like checks in with the waiter they're seated they put in their orders you'd think like it would end with them paying the bill and like going in opposite directions on the sidewalk at the end of the night. Yeah, like, if we can just go back to the the last thing that Andre says, well, have a real relationship with the person that goes on for years, that's completely unpredictable. Then you've cut off your ties to the land and you're sailing into the unknown, into uncharted seas. I mean, people hold on to these images of mother, of father, of wife for the same reason, because they seem to provide some firm ground. But there's no wife there. Okay, th- this is where I start to lose it. <laughs> but there's no wife there. What does that mean? A wife, a husband, a son, a baby holds your hands, and then there's suddenly this huge man lifting you off the ground, and then he's gone. Where's that son? I mean, I guess that's God, right? Like, you're you're only here with these other people, but they're not... I don't know. But, like, maybe it's... They're not just, you know, your wife, your son, your husband... They're like people having their own experiences. There's no wife there. That's another person. Uh, right. They're not there to service your experience. They're having their own experience. And then at the end of all this, you die. And so we're all just like strangers drifting in and out of each other's existence, which I mean, pretty that's, surface. That's what my dinner with Andre is. Right. Um, like, and you're never going to really be able to predict what your experience with someone's going to be like. Again, that's what this story is clearly about. Right. But they're not, it's not like they used to be best friends or something like i guess they had a professional history but like wally's dreading having to see this guy because they only worked together once and he thinks it's going to be awkward or something like it might be more interesting if they're like estranged brothers or maybe that's too easy yeah too personal did you do any reading on what the play was really about like the kind of like meta weird deep meaning i don't know anything about it it's not a play it's a movie which is I mean that's the that's the the feat I guess right? right you can keep people entertained for ninety minutes just listening to two people talking there's no scene changes oh, was it ninety minutes well like was our recording around ninety minutes 
I don't know, because I'll have to like cut out a couple of little um, little jostles and breaks and stuff. Right, but uh, thereabouts, I mean, I guess like uh, I had commented to you that it's 39 pages and you said that seems way too short. Yeah. And like the rule of thumb, give or take, is that uh, like roughly a minute a page. Right. But our margins are a little bit different and there's no... There's no like stage directions or like director notes or anything. It's just dialogue. And so the metric completely falls apart. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we ended up spending like two or three minutes on each page, which probably evens out to, you know, 90 or 100 minutes. Right. So the next play we or the next movie we do is like Avengers Infinity War. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We should. <laughs> Natural progression. <laughs> we should do the artist to see if that yeah. translates to <laughs> some chaplain. <laughs> Uh, I really want to see the movie now. Yeah, I do too. But I'm like, I don't, I wonder if I'm going to sit there and watch the movie and get anything more out of it. Like I'm, yeah, I, I think I've, you think you nailed the part of Andre Gregory. No, 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 <laughs> no. I don't mean I've gotten everything there is to get out of it. I mean that I think I'm still going to end in like the, like abrupt confusion that this play left me with this movie left me with. I mean, I guess you're you're supposed to still be thinking about it afterward. Um, It's just kind of, frankly, I think it's, although I thought it was compelling and Mm -hmm. I thought it was entertaining and the two like characters are are interesting together, I think it's a little bit masturbatory on Wally Sean's part. No disrespect, but I just think that like, um, I mean, (laughs) here we are like ripping off his material for our podcast (laughs) and I'm going to criticize him. Uh, Not really, just like all he did was think about everything he knows and write it down right like he, there it actually he gets away with not having a, having to come up with a plot right like instead yeah. instead he's just like well here's like, all this is th- just gonna be a conversation yeah here's all the things that i've considered in my life mm-hmm. write them down in 39 pages mm-hmm. and we'll call it a masterpiece are they eating this whole time too that's that's another it's called my dinner with andre well they order the quail at the beginning yeah and, and then the quail comes. Is it, are they actually like eating in between while, while the other person is doing this? Like, like what? What does the shot look like? Well, maybe that makes it easier to deliver some of the stuttering, though. Like all of the uhs and the I don't know how many times the phrase "I mean" is right. written into this script, but like it, it would allow and you, you know. to. And you know, or you see, you stop and like pause and like you chew for a minute while you like actually consider what you're about to say. I think that's the greater feat, and like the continuity part. <laughs> like what was on the plate at this point that's so true i think like, probably food acting is really challenging do you think that's visible brad pitt the world's greatest food actor how would he do as one of these characters my dinner with brad maybe that's the, <laughs> that's that's the spinoff that's right dining with pitt it's still just wally sean but with brad pitt <laughs> that could have been the whole series just wally sean goes to dinner with all kinds of different people man he's missing out on like webisodes where he could actually be doing this it's kind of funny this hasn't been like parodied more often. I, I do right. think it's like pretty niche. Do you know what it was parodied in? Community. Community. That's the only, that was when I realized what. That was my original frame of reference. My I, dinner with Abed, dinner with Andre. I didn't know anything about my dinner with Andre ahead of that. Um, I wonder if I, I, sh- I should definitely watch that episode of Community now. I, and I wonder if that really, um, like if Wally Sean's like, man, thank God that they did a parody of that because it introduced a whole new group of people. Well, I will, like s- us to I will say, later. I looked on the Halifax Library website to see if they had copies of the script. Yeah. And they didn't, but they do have the DVD. And it wow. was uh, taken out 
Like somebody has it. And it's not on like any streaming platform. No, it's unfindable. Nobody talks about my dinner with Andre as like one of the great things. Well, there's like 500,000 people in Halifax, right? Right. And at any given moment, one person is probably going to want to be watching that one copy of that movie. I guess. I think that's, I think that's maybe generous. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. Yeah. Maybe like one and a half a million people. Yeah. Like, when's this supposed to be back i almost just want to track it and see how quickly it goes again i well, i'll put myself on the wait list and then okay. maybe we can check it out okay because like it's it's definitely worth looking into well something i remember about the community episode is like abed is clearly putting it on which right. by the way is kind of like another meta meta involvement of the story like he's totally. kind of cr he's pretending to be this person that he's not which is what the script is about wow that's Dan Harmon was a genius sometimes. <laughs> like his whole thing with that show was about how meta, 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 like. Well, and how creative is it that Abed knows he's in a TV show? Like I've never seen that in a sitcom before. He's the only one who knows. Right. Like that's so interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like instead of telling stories about when he was on Mount Everest or when he was in the Sahara or Africa or whatever, he's talking about when he like wandered onto the set of Cougar Town. Oh, is that what? Because I, yeah. I was thinking about all the Cougar Town stuff. <laughs> so that, that's what he's uh, expounding on. I think so. That's hilarious. And then meanwhile, this is the episode where it's Abed's birthday and Jeff is trying to get him to come to like a Pulp Fiction themed birthday party. Remember? Oh, yeah. But Abed is like distracting him at at the restaurant right so the whole the whole thing is that you think it's going to be a pulp fiction episode but like abed takes it into the complete opposite direction with a my dinner with andre both episode. both great like chat movies though like both are great like dialogue scripts but one's like so much like spicier than the other well like, yeah like one is just so much more well known oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that that uh Abed is like trying to like you know completely change direction into this like way lesser known movie it's hilarious I will say um obviously we didn't know this ahead of time and so that changes it a little bit but I think this uh, experience gives me more respect for actors which I had respect for anyway but it's mm -hmm. just like the idea of like having to learn all this I know I think it's a little hacky to be like wow you memorized all this it's not just that it's to know every word and to know how you want to approach every word so that it yeah. sounds natural. Like that's a tremendous amount of commitment, insane amount of commitment. And then the director could say, I want you to be like angrier mm -hmm. when you're saying this. So you like have it all memorized a certain way. And all of a sudden it's like, Oh now I need to do it more angry. Yeah. This entire thing that I memorized. I know. I don't know. I, I guess I still don't really naively. I still don't really know what a director does. I think like ne well I guess kind of that right I think so but I also think like there's a bit of a taboo on line reading like I think that you're as a professional you're expected to come knowing how to say your dialogue right and if it's really not working if you really don't have the right idea of who your character is you're uh, Eric Stoltz and you get fired from back to the future right and then is that why he got fired yeah he's a good actor but he just didn't get that it was a comedy Oh, okay. And so he, they were like, you're a good actor, but like, this is a, a fun adventure comedy and you're like being Daniel Day-Lewis right now. Right. Sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> we always wanted Michael J. Fox anyway. But, so. he, but he wasn't like mem memorizing his lines? No, he, I think he probably knew his lines just fine, but. Um, he was delivering them in a way. That it just, he just working. didn't have the, the fun chemistry of Michael J. Fox. He just didn't have like the. I don't know, because I haven't seen Eric Stoltz in that much, although I think he was in Pulp Fiction, wasn't he? was he? in Pulp Fiction, yeah. yeah. Um, 
But uh, they wanted Michael J. Fox anyway, and uh, Gary David Goldberg wouldn't let him off family ties. And oh. so they hired uh, Eric Stoltz, who Tom Wilson, who played Biff, uh, didn't like. He found him very pretentious and like kind of a, oh, a, really? a big egomaniac. Yeah. Um, Leah Thompson's nice about everybody. And she said it was, you know, she, she's even nice about Crispin Glover. Like, she's like, right. it was great working with, but they were all like, once they got Michael J. Fox, uh, and Michael J. Fox, like, he just didn't sleep for a year while he shot a TV show and also a movie. Really? I was going to say, what was it that made the Family Ties guy finally go, okay, well, well, you can do it. Most of Back to the Future takes place at nighttime. There is some daytime stuff, and I don't know how they worked out those hours, right. but like, most of it is at nighttime. That <laughs> and, is insanity. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. And so, anyway, that, all that to say, I think, you know, actors do an incredible job. It's really yeah. amazing. Really totally. challenging. That was fun. That was a cool experience. I don't know if there's anything else we could do. I don't even know if we legally can do what we just did, but whatever. CNDS. Yeah. Well, it's hard to Come get. after us, Paramount or whoever just, it is. Just trying to share the, share the, we don't make any money from this podcast, by the way. Not yet. No. <laughs> maybe, maybe in year six. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, we're good, right? We don't have to do any more. No, I don't think so. Okay, cool. All right. Uh, never trust Will Smith. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, what about Will Smith and Brad Pitt doing my dinner with Andre? I like it. Yeah? Who's who? Pitt's Andre, right? He's like, I'd rather see him be like this like weird. I would rather see him be the weird guy, but I think yeah. Will Smith would be like, no, like I really want to make a meal out of being Andre. Well, and because Wally's so insecure, I have a hard time imagining will smith being insecure but right. i think brad pitt could do insecure although he hasn't really before both of them play pretty pretty secure pretty guys confident guys <laughs> yeah you're right understandably i guess yeah what was brad's brad pitt's least secure performance um geez i don't even know i'm still stuck in once upon a time in hollywood for some reason like oceans 11 he's definitely secure in that yeah, he's secure in everyone yeah he's very like what about benjamin button that's a movie we don't talk about at all yeah you're right that was a good watch yeah yeah. Who was the director on that? The uh, writer? Well, the, ri like the writer is Fitzgerald. It's F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote um, Curry's Case of Benjamin Button. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I had no idea. Um, I think it's like Ang Lee or... Oh, okay. No, maybe it's somebody darker than that. Maybe it's like weirdly David Fincher or something. Yeah, I thought it was like Fincher or Soderbergh or something weird. The director was David Fincher. We were right. Oh, yeah. Fincher. Interesting. Speaking of David Fincher and and script length, I've just found myself in a Zodiac rabbit hole yesterday. Yeah. Have you ever watched that? I tried to watch it and I quit real fast because it was so brutal. Like really? the opening scene is good, but like it's just so upsetting. And I think oh, I, really? I think I could probably get past the opening scene and then maybe get involved with the movie. I think they were just trying to set a tone of tension and they did it a little too well for sensitive old me. Yeah. Um, but the script for, for Zodiac is over 200 pages, which is just way too long. Right. And so he just told his actors to talk faster. Oh, really? Yeah. And this is the guy who directed The Social Network. And I'm watching clips of this movie, and they're not talking Social Network fast. No. I think it's a really long movie. I think it is. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I've never... And that's the main hurdle for me, is I've just heard it was a super long movie. But, like, people love it. Good cast. Yeah. I learned a little bit about the Zodiac Killer yesterday. Sometimes I go down serial killer rabbit holes. It doesn't seem like something I do, but mm -hmm. I did. <laughs> um, yeah, there was this whole uh, book called like Chaos or something, and it's it's about like the Manson murders, but there's like kind of some spins into uh, the Zodiac Killer okay. part of it. I heard dude on a podcast he was kind of interesting what i took away from what i read yesterday is that there's definitely more than one zodiac killer there's probably like a, a like one or two guys who established that and then a bunch of copycats yeah for sure 
Yeah. yeah. And I think the guy who most likely did it's this I read about him yesterday, this guy named Lee Allen, who um one of the survivors, this guy who is the guy in the opening scene who gets shot in like the face and the neck six times and somehow survives. Twenty right. years later, picks this guy out of the lineup. He's like, I'm like at least eighty percent sure that's the guy who shot me twenty years ago. And then so the FBI, who was already on this guy, Lee Allen anyway, mm-hmm. call him up and they're like, We want to meet with you. And before they actually can arrange the meeting, he dies of a heart attack. Oh. And so I, th- I think probably he was the Zodiac Killer. This was in the 90s. Right. Yeah. Heel turn. Did okay. you watch Borat yet? No. But apparently Borat is great. It's it's a it's a fun watch. Yeah. I, I didn't quite finish it yet. I watched most of it last night. Is it like surprisingly sentimental at times? That's what I heard. It's that weirdly kind of sweet. Yeah. There's definitely a bit of that. Okay. Yeah. And what about, did you get to the Giuliani stuff? Yes, I did. And like... I feel like the Giuliani stuff, not to make excuses for him, but I feel like it was more of a case of like her really like taking the lead. Okay. Like she, and she's a, a great actress and I don't know. She plays Borat's daughter. Yeah. She's kind of new. I think, yeah, but I think maybe okay. he just found her and right. Yeah. Yeah. She's very funny. Like you could see that, that there was probably some times where Sasha Baron Cohen was like, Oh my God, what she did there was great. Like, yeah. Like, just like how she chose to, to do that was really funny so do you think rudy was being a perv or was he just fixing his pants well to be fair like she like sat him down and like untucked his like shirt Mm. and then he like kind of like is leaning back and like going down so i'm not sure if he was just like retucking or but it's weird that he i feel like he was just totally confused about the situation but once they were in that situation the directors and stuff were like, Oh, go, 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 go. Like, like we got to act fast kind of thing. Right. So it looks good for the movie, but I'm truly, although he, he is like, kind of like, he's like pervy in the way that an old man's pervy kind of like, Oh, sweetheart, you know, no, you look great. Yeah. He's gross kind of thing. But like, I don't know that. I don't know. Maybe I need to give it another watch. Maybe I'm letting him too far off the hook. I I do want to see the movie. Um, what about trial of Chicago seven? Oh yeah. Loved it. Loved it. We both like that movie. Yeah, that's a very chatty movie. We'd yeah. need a lot more people to read that script in here. But, <laughs> yes, uh, we would. But it's not like, I mean, I guess there is more like action. There's cutaways to like rioting and stuff. But actually, the cutaways were really strong. It was oh, a good man. way of doing the movie. I didn't like, know anything kind of about the story. But like Sasha Baron Cohen, two very different things we, in back to back weeks. And both yeah. of them like getting a lot of attention. Yeah, like here we go, Sasha Baron Cohen. He could get nominated considering it's such a weird Oscar year. There are a couple of performances that I think could get. Are they still considering doing the Oscars? Like, is this. It's yeah. for sure happening. Yeah, they're scheduled for April. They're bumped back, but they're scheduled for April. That's going to be such an asterisk year. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, a weird year for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and other than that, there was something else I wanted to. Oh, uh, what'd you think of the debates? I mean, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whatever. It was like, it. I don't know. Somebody from Pod Save America tweeted that if you thought this new, like, calmer Trump is presidential all of a sudden you have Stockholm syndrome right and he's calmer in relation to what he's been yeah the bar is so incredibly different still pretty crazy he's graded on such a curve as to everybody else yeah um you know and if you haven't made up your mind at this point what the hell's the matter with you like you are choosing what to and what not Mm -hmm. to see I don't care what bubble you live in the inf the truth is not hiding I do they know how many since you listen to pod save America and stuff do, do they know how many ballots have been cast like what percentage of 50 million ballots have been cast oh wow which is a ton that's pretty strong yeah and there's how many people in uh this is basically like the population of canada more than the population of canada has 
Yeah, more. We have like 35 million people right. in Canada, right? They have more like 350 million people in the States. Now they're right. not all eligible voters. Right. Um, well, that's a strong, strong mail-in turnout. Great, great so start. Yeah. yeah. Wow. 50 million. I know. It's so he, he might have like potentially won already. Or there may no because it's not the popular vote, right? It's the right. friggin' electoral, electoral college. college. Yeah, and Bernie Sanders was on Fallon last night. He was talking about how, uh, just based on the way they um, they report states as victories, mm-hmm. like they could very very easily look on election night like Trump is on on the road towards an electoral victory. Yeah, and then in the following days. Biden's states come through like maybe they do all the red states first right Trump declares victory and then once Biden has in fact won a week later Trump can say I told you mailing was completely right. fraudulent you know and so he's he's already got his like exit strategy sure. he's totally ready yeah. yeah it's a scary time <laughs> I would once like again. to see my dinner with Andre with Trump and Biden imagine yes I can we I think we've seen it actually it's hard though because like watching that Trump you actually if you're if you were fooled by like charisma, mm. there's like such a huge lack of charisma with Biden. I don't agree. I think he's actually very charismatic. Oh, really? When he throws on that smile or when he says, he come, point, when come he, on, man, that or when he points to Trump and he goes and Abraham Lincoln over here. I oh, did that, he say that? I think that's friggin hilarious. I miss, how is that not a headline? Like I just I, I'm getting headline news from this presidential debate. Yeah. And and I watched part of it, but I did not see Abraham it's more Lincoln lucrative to report on on Trump's temperament. Clearly, yeah. clearly it is a video went around um, this week. It was on TikTok. I tweeted it out. Um and it was from, it was post Parkland. So I don't know why it wasn't seen sooner, but it was Biden going up and down a line of like fam, families of victims. And oh, he's wow. like basically sharing condolences. Uh, and just out of nowhere, uh, this guy uh, runs up to Biden and he appears to be uh, special needs in some kind of way. Oh, okay. And he just like throws his arms around Biden. Oh, wow. And Biden's like, thank you for hugging me. And he gives him like a kiss on the forehead and he tells him, are you okay? You're going to be okay. We're all going to be okay. It is like... It's shockingly gorgeous. It's wow. you can't believe you can't believe that this thing is even close when you look at the like pure compassion. Right. And then you consider what would happen if a special needs person ran up to Trump, hugged him. Right. It like it would be the most confusing <laughs> Yes, that would be awful. Like last week after the town hall, friggin' like Fox News people, pundits, are are saying that Joe Biden's just a Mr. Rogers. And Joe Biden's campaign is like, is that the best you've got? Like, yeah, that's, is, that, that's your, is that the worst you insult call, you could say? Yeah, you're calling that like a burn? Because yeah. fine, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, we're fine with being the Mr. Rogers president. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're, we're on route to saying never trust Will Smith a, yes, a minute ago. Right. and then uh, So let's just say it now. Never trust Will Smith. <laughs>